My name's Josh Alvarez. And I'm Lee O'Donnell. And you're listening to episode 124 of Cinepunks. I mean, 124 is pretty good. It's not 125, but it's pretty no, good. No, no, no. Yeah, pretty good. Also, something that can be categorized as pretty good is that we have internet celebrity guest today, Mr. Douglas Tilly. Hey, everybody. Boy, I was hoping for a little bit more uh, interplay between the two of you before we started. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. So I think, I think that the, the interplay between the three of us is far more entertaining. I agree. <laughs> I, mean, I actually agree. <laughs> <laughs> we will see. I mean, I want to hear more about what number this episode is. <laughs> oh, I see. Josh, th- so yeah. this is, I, guys, uh, we, we should just put this out there uh, immediately, which is, this is our, this is, this is our second chance. This is time number two. This is our second yeah. round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is we, our, you know, this is we our have double two, dip. We have two lost episodes. That's and, true. Um, one was because, not going to lie to you, it was all my fault. My shit done dropped out. Like the computer, I don't know. Longtime listeners of the show know Josh Alvarez isn't exactly Captain Computers. Captain Computer Pants. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so like that shit just done fucked up on me. And so I lost it. That was my bad. The other time that we lost an episode was way back at the beginning when Liam still lived in South Philadelphia and we had director and longtime friend Matt Garrett on and we recorded this beautiful four hour episode because back then we didn't know any limits and then we lost it. It was cool. So I, I, I don't even I, I don't even remember how we lost it, but it just was gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um it was a ghost, if I had to suggest. If I had to wasn't it, was that number four or number five? Something like that. It was one of those early. Like, I think it was okay. like number four, and then we put out the demos, and everyone's like, uh, "It goes from three to five. and we're like, "Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there just weird. is no episode four. I don't know what to tell you." We should mention, believe- by the way, that in our lost episode, the one that we uh, sort of recorded, like the the movies that we were going to talk about, we're not talking about those movies anymore. No, no, no. we just watched them now for GP, which is honestly. <laughs> Kind of an affront if we're being <laughs> honest with each other, Doug. Because Doug feel, picked those guys. If I knew what was going to happen, I would have picked way worse movies for you. <laughs> Thank Look, God you don't have the gift of foresight, Doug. That's yes, all I'm saying. Because man, those movies side. were bad. But you know, stop, stop. Oh no. So we were. So for for the listening <laughs> audience, we were going to cover it because you probably if I, I don't know how many people actually do, but if you paid attention to our social media, we promoted that we were doing an episode on Robo War and. Something else, Xenomorph. The Phobe. Yeah, yeah, Something. the Here's the thing: that episode doesn't exist. That's the one that died. And we, you know, as you know, it's hard to schedule. It's even harder to schedule when life gets in the way. And you know, Josh had a bunch of life stuff, and then I had life stuff, and now Josh is in Phoenix yeah, <laughs> for a while. And Doug is still Canadian despite all no, of this. We try so hard, but he's still Canadian. It's crazy. <laughs> and. And so with all that going on, when we were like, finally, we're going to get back and re-record, the idea of re-watching Phobe <laughs> or Phoebe or whatever the fuck it is. It's, it's Phobe, Liam, and I've had to watch it multiple times, so I don't see what the big it's, deal look, is. Just I mean, you yeah, that's totally on you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was about to say, like, dude, don't put your sins in the past <laughs> on us, dog. That's just you. Look, yeah. that movie like me is Canadian. Maybe I have a certain affinity for Canadian productions, I do actually, as Liam well knows, but uh, I don't think it's so bad. I think it's actually quite an accomplishment, though we're not here to talk about that because that's been lost forever. 
I mean, you're I just, welcome. I, I bring it up. I bring it up only to say, like, that's why we're already primed and why Doug is already ready to come in uh, as a hostile witness, basically yeah. on this podcast, because he's you like, fucked he up feels, once. Yeah, you you feel familiar with us enough to like talk shit already, even though you just got here. But also, I brought it up to say. Regardless of what Josh says, Robo War is actually very good, and I want to recommend people <laughs> check it out if it's available on Tubi and a bunch of other places. So, uh, if you're someone who, unlike Josh, appreciates independent filmmaking by Italians, then go ahead and check it out. Oh my goodness! I believe there's a Severin Blu-ray release that is filled with special features that I would recommend everyone pick up. Yeah, I don't, I didn't, I don't have that, but but I did, I did like it, and I and I, and I do, I do thank thank. You, Doug, for bringing it into my life because I, I wanted to watch it at some point, but it, you know I want to watch a lot of things you know at some point. So uh, you you picking it was great, but instead we went for two movies <laughs> for this episode that honestly I should have seen already. Like I, I feel a little bit embarrassed that both of these are new to me. Though I will say, our second film I have seen clips of it in a class before about American politics because a lot of people name the moment that ends this film as the end of the 60s. For some reason, ignoring the Manson murders and going straight to this event. <laughs> uh, and and, and uh, those two movies are what, Josh? What are we covering on this episode? On today's episode, we are covering Monterey Pop and Gimme Shelter, two music movies that are not musicals, but, you know, are available on the Criterion app. I like Josh saying they're not musicals is actually like a diss. Like he's like he's like these would be better if they were musicals, but they're fine. You know, fine <laughs> dude. Everybody who listens to the show knows of my love for musical film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Doug, you didn't choose these exclusively. This was like a this was like a group sure. a group decision together. However, as the guest, you're responsible for them. So why these movies? Uh, well, uh, there are two kind of notable concert movies in the. Uh, in the genre overall, if we could have gone easy and watched like Stop Making Sense or something like that. But in terms of this era, this late 60s era, I think they actually make a really kind of fun counterpoint to one another. Yes. I think a lot of people would have said, hey, you guys should watch Woodstock. Actually, I'm sure your audience, nobody would have said that. But it, it, it certainly <laughs> crossed our mind. But I, I'm really glad that we picked Monterey Pop as the first one to discuss instead. A, because I don't think it's been picked over as much as Woodstock, even though it's obviously a lot has been written about it. But also, I think in terms of putting it up against Gimme Shelter, it really kind of puts... It makes something very stark and, and very obvious, which is that uh, within the two years between 1967 and 1969, uh, shit went bad. <laughs> it got really, yeah. really not great around that time period. Yeah, I think they kind of work as interesting counterpoints as well. And and really, like, one is a best-case scenario. You know, like, Monterey yeah. Pop, anyone who's run any kind of event, let alone something of this size, the fact that Monterey Pop doesn't have any harsh vibes on, on film, I'm sure there's <laughs> bad stuff happening. There's no human gathering sure. at which nothing goes wrong. But nothing is on film, whereas a lot of what went wrong in Altamont ends up in Gimme Shelter. <laughs> you, you know, you could, <laughs> you, could, uh, you could name the number of uh, horrifying events that maybe aren't directly filmed, but you can at least visually see them on film in Gimme Shelter. So in, in that way, it's an interesting uh, uh, comparison to say, like, here is sort of the best case of not just live music, but of this culture and this scene and this moment, right? Like, this is the dream in a way. Uh, and then here's the nightmare. You know, here's but- the thing that went wrong. But the thing is, it, the context of Woodstock is still incredibly important for Gimme Shelter because you kind of get the impression that 
everyone thought things would be okay at Altamont because everything was pretty okay at Woodstock, right? Yeah, because yeah, well, even though pretty okay is good. <laughs> yeah, well, what I mean is that Gimme Shelter. Uh, one of the things the pot, the uh, the documentary shows is how difficult it was to get this free concert going and how it almost fell apart all these times, right? But that they felt like there was uh, momentum to make it happen because Woodstock, the movie. You know, and the experience and this cultural uh, uh, event had already occurred. And they're like, oh, we can have another Woodstock. And now, you know, you could even hear it in the voice of the guy from the Altamont Speedway. He's like, just make sure, you know, mention Altamont. <laughs> you know, and make sure that it's going to be like a thing that people remember <laughs> decades from now, just like Woodstock. And he was right. But boy, not for the reasons he thought. Lo and behold, thy wish is granted. I it's mean, hard, literally, it's hard to even his... His speedway becomes a comes a cheap talking point for lazy American studies professors for the next like 30, 40 years. <laughs> I mean, we are being a little lazy anyway, just because. I mean, and it, 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 maybe it's not us, but the cultural conversation is very much just like you said, Liam, which is that you know the summer of love in nineteen sixty seven, and then there's Woodstock, and then it comes to a screeching halt with Gimme Shelter. That's a simplification because. As we can see, even in Monterey Pop, maybe if you turn your camera a little to the left or to the right, you see a lot of the st- the, the the same uncomfortable hippie-ish, uh, you know, people tripping on LSD and stripping naked type stuff that you see in Gimme Shelter that kind of gives off these strange vibes. But that's just not what we see in Monterey Pop. Well, I, I, I do want to, you know, I it's too... Again, as you said, it's probably too simple to point out to the bad actors. But... I, I don't think it's completely unjustified to say also hell's fucking angels and I get it like they've got they've got long hair they ride motorcycles they seem cool but uh you know these uh motorcycle clubs they are not really the same as hippies regardless of what Roger Corman has been trying to tell us for how many years with these movies and <laughs> conflating these various subcultures they are very different subcultures those and not, not only are they different they don't mix well right yeah. and um at least one of them is known for being deeply racist in a violent way. And I'll give you a hint. It's not the ones with flowers in their hair. So, uh, you know, you could argue that they're both out, out, you know, extensions of white supremacy in a way, but only one of them also has a switchblade at all times. You know what I'm saying? So I just think, like, uh, the, uh, it is very easy to make grand statements about hippiedom and the 60s based upon uh, Altamont. But I also think... It's it's also just bad planning, you know. We we a lot of trust was placed in a bunch of folks who I don't think had the justified history for that trust. But yeah, I just realized we're getting into a lot of analysis of this movie. <laughs> we're not even there yet. We're gonna save we're gonna save a bunch of that for the actual conversation. Instead, we're gonna start off the way we always should, which is saying thank you. We want to say thank you not only to you for listening, but specifically to all of those people who support us on Patreon. Our patrons, through their generous uh, giving, uh, really make this show and all the shows on the network possible. They help pay for uh, equipment. They help pay for storage. They help pay for our website. Um, But our goal is to eventually be able to pay people for the work that they're doing. Uh, And so we have set goals for that, specific finance goals, and we're hoping to get there. So if you are listening to this and you enjoy what you hear or you like some of the other shows more, that's fine. I'm not offended. Go ahead and (laughs) check out the Patreon. Consider donating as little as a dollar a month 
uh, and as much as fifty <laughs> um, to to support us. And you know, there's there are benefits that come with that too. Are the benefits equal to the money given? You know, probably not. But that's not the point. The point is, is that you're helping us out and you're helping us continue and hopefully grow to uh, the potential of, you know, not being a business per se, but at least compensating people for the hard work they're doing to make Cinepunks happen. So, uh, you know, that's important. And we hope you check it out. Uh, Josh, I had a question for you, though. Sure. Hit me. Let's say you decided against all reason to start a sixth band. And this right. band is a, a banjo band that covers Ink and Dagger songs. Okay, okay. Yeah. Not outside and the realm of reason. No, Go on. No. And you come up with this sick shirt where all of you are basically shirtless in overalls with straw hats on, but you have like the, the poorly done corpse paint of Ink and Dagger. Right, right, right. Where are you going to get those shirts printed? Funny you should ask, Liam, because I was thinking the same thing just now as I was going over uh, Shadow Talker on the banjo. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was like, you know who would do a good job? Nay, nay, nay. A great job printing t-shirts for my new uh, Bluegrass Ink and Dagger tribute band. Who's that? The good people at the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. X, LVACX.com. You got to go check them out. <laughs> it must be great. You guys are you guys both in Pennsylvania right now? No, no, not at all. Neither of you are. Both of you have escaped <laughs> from the Lehigh Valley, which I don't think reflects very well on either of you, or maybe doesn't reflect well on your T-shirt company you keep promoting. Oh, I love you so much, Doug. You jerk off. <laughs> I, 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 it's funny, Doug, because I was going to pull you into this to say, Doug, you live in Canada. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Yeah, and I, yet, I sure do. And yet, for our podcast, we printed some shirts. Where did we print those shirts? I have no idea. I wasn't really part of the conversation. <laughs> Lehigh Valley uh, Apparel Creations, you jackass. I thought it was t- teespring.net. Is that what it is? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. You're, Chris Reject is going to love you ruining yet another ad for him since usually all our ads for LVAC uh, devolve into me and Justin Lohr making fun of Chris Reject because uh, cause he's not straight edge, guys. He's not straight edge. <laughs> what? How could that be? No, I love the Lehigh Valley folks because uh, they also uh, print a lot of T-shirts for uh, independent professional wrestlers. They really yes, do, they and they do. do great work. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm high on it. Look, I'm look. We all have a little fun here on the the Cinepunks podcast, but let's be serious <laughs> for a second. Uh, Lehigh Valley Apparel are the good guys, and they're uh, they're up against these uh, multi million dollar corporations putting out their shit T-shirts that no one should be buying. I agree. They are the perfect combination of personable and professional. You know, the 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 real oh boy. <laughs> Why? What are you? <laughs> are you reading copy? What is this? <laughs> no, this is this. I mean, it, in a sense, this is copy because I say the same thing every time. But I'm going to say it again. <laughs> a lot of people feel like you have to choose. You know, either the people you work with are going to be easy and fun and interesting to work with, or you're going to get good work. And nary shall the two meet. And that's not the same. <laughs> That's not the, that's not true at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. On one hand, all the work you're going to get is going to be affordable at a good price. It's going to be quality work. You're going to get it on time. But if you go in there, there'll be some jerk-off skateboarding. There's little <laughs> shitty chihuahuas running around. There's a Mortal Kombat game. You can play Mortal Kombat while you're talking to Chris about your shirts. The reality <laughs> is this is the only company that manages to be both good at what they do and solidly punk rock. So Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. That is okay. the most important thing when I'm purchasing a product is that the people making it are quote unquote 
interesting. <laughs> I mean, I I think it actually matters, you know. But yeah, whatever. In the world of screen print, I would say yes. Trust yeah. your screen printer. Well, and you know also also they're fun to work with. I don't know if you've ever worked with actual professionals, Doug. But it's like working with not on podcasts. Sh- I can tell you that much. Sh- it's like working with <laughs> shitty automatons. You know, they're like like inhuman monsters, and I don't want to talk to those folks. But I do want to talk to the folks at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Can we, we also talk about something real quick, just to yeah. s- uh, LVAC. Now, um, here's the thing. Yeah. Back in the early aughts, sure, <laughs> I played Allentown a couple times in my band called Bellagost. Did oh, you yeah. know I was in a band called Bellagost, Doug? Did you know this? Was this a Billy Joel cover band? No, <laughs> it was. It was. Uh, well, I mean, I could see how you'd make that mistake. We were a six-man operation that played long-form post-rock. That was uh-huh. all a tribute to uh, Tolkien. And we were called Belagost. And we played the Lehigh Valley at a place called the Pirate's Cove all the time. And um, at that time, there was a thing called the LVAC. But it was the Lehigh Valley Action Club. Or wait, activities club, something like that. Yes. All, the only reason I remember this is because there was one time we played the Pirates Cove, and it was like the last Pirates Cove show, and we all like stood in this gigantic group photograph with people making the LV and the A and the C on like the roof of the house. Is this the same thing? Are these the I same? I mean, people? that's where he got the name from. Yes, yes, yes. It's the same. Yes, and in fact, the LVAC was in direct competition with uh, uh, Clint and Justin's uh, crew from Easton. And by competition, I mean they were all friends, but they pretended to have a fake rivalry. Yes, I, I've been uh, informed of all this Lehigh Valley lore. It's no, I had no idea I what it was. I didn't know. And for the six years that we've been doing Cinepunks, of which I'm pretty sure they've been sponsors for like six of those years. Like I've I've always been like, huh. I wonder if these are the same people that uh, like post rock themed about Lord of the Rings. Oh my god! This is a, I this know. Is a, this is a I very know. long commercial. <laughs> it's, oh, I, Doug, it's a question. It's, no, <laughs> Doug, you don't. You, you, if your if your goal in being our guest, Doug, is to try to rein in Josh or me, you, give up now, man. It's just there, yeah. there's no possibility. It's not going to happen. Speaking of reining us in, uh, it's hard to rein in Josh when he's jacked up on coffee, especially if it's when from I- Essex <laughs> Coffee Roasters. <laughs> Josh, how do you yeah, feel about man. Essex Coffee Roasters? I love them shits, dog. They own my creative life. But um, yeah, no. If you would like small batch, individually roasted beans for your coffee, I would suggest trying Essex Coffee Roasters. Let's be clear. They roast your order when you order it. They don't roast yeah. each bead separately, which is what you kind no, of No, 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 no. Incorrect. <laughs> they roast every single bean by hand. Aaron stands there with a lighter. And roasts each bean. Oh, you couldn't to your even give, you couldn't even give him a creme brulee torch. It's got to be a lighter, like a bic. I'm sorry, man. Your capitalist society just hands out creme brulee torches to everybody. I mean, I got not one. mine. Oh yeah, one. well yeah, <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yeah, Essex Coffee Roasters for all of your coffee needs. Yeah, just go to EssexCoffeeRoasters.com, <laughs> enter in the promo code set of pugs. You'll get ten percent off. I've, this is the, all this ads is taking too long. I'm, I'm, this is too much capitalism. If I go me. into Essex Coffee, can I play Mortal Kombat while someone is skateboarding? <laughs> That's what I need to know. You can guarantee that you'll be purchasing coffee from good people. 
Good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's actually very true. Doug is revealing that as uh, his version of capitalism involves not knowing anything about the people he buys things from. I get it, Doug. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, Canada, if I, Canada if I feel, really is just a mining concern pretending to be a country. So, <laughs> I feel like interesting is code for unprofessional, Liam. Whoa. I mean, you, you are one of our normie guests, so I get it. You know, we're, we have to introduce you to this world of, of people who actually have personalities and stuff. It's fine. No, it's fine. Um, but speaking of personalities, now's the time for us to do our only regular feature on this show, which is what again, Josh? I believe it's called. Whacking on, on track. track! Yay! So, sorry, what's it called? Oh, you fucker. <laughs> yeah. I'm man. really glad that Doug didn't know to jump in because, you know, that would have been unsettling. Whack or on track! <laughs> it's not even right. It wasn't even right what you said. What is it? So, whack and on track. But that's cool. Who wants to get into it over semantics, Doug? Here's the thing as our guest for the second time, that's true. <laughs> the third time. Uh, what is the order in which you would like to go, Doug? Would you like to go first, second, or last in this installment of Whack and On Track? No one, no listener will ever know this, but last time I went first. I jumped right into the Whack and On Track. <laughs> um, but uh, this time I feel like I'm going to go second. Okay, let's do it. Liam, you what have you first? done recently? Yeah, boy. Yeah, All right, yeah. buddy. All right. So um, I want to start off saying uh, the most on track thing ever, because uh, you know I just have really come to appreciate the work that he's doing. Is our editor Jacob Roberts? Can we just say yeah. that that Jacob is the best? He's been doing these um, trailer style advertisements for upcoming episodes of Harvest and the Cinepunks. I think we're going to try to get him to start doing it for some of the other shows as well. And I just really appreciate his work. I think he's great. Um, and, you know, we always joke about Jacob. We talk about, like, oh, Jacob, edit that out, whatever, whatever. But, like, I just want to make sure everyone knows his name and knows that uh, he's great. And he's responsible for any episode we have that sounds good. That's because of Jacob. You know, it's because of the work that he does. And so I, Absolutely. Just wanna, I wanted to acknowledge him up front. Um, and, 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 you know, if you're someone out there who, like, can pay someone to edit things, video and audio. Think about uh, hitting us up to get in contact with Jacob because I think uh, I think he would do great work for for anyone who needs it. Good. Okay. <laughs> that was me. That was me. Being, was this just? Is that was that another ad? What's going on here? Well, I just love. I just Doug. I just really appreciate. He. You does can't all this edit your own free, podcast, so. Liam. What? What? Are you? Oh, so I busy can. Right I now? did it. I did it for the first uh, fifty episodes, and then Jacob <laughs> volunteered to do it, and I was like, thank God. And now I love recording because i don't have to have the horror of editing it myself it makes me very happy okay so a few things um i recently watched a movie called uh i think it's bloody nose empty pockets is the name of the film um it was put out uh on blu-ray by vinegar syndrome well i think it's like a sub label of vinegar syndrome it's like their first new movie release that they've done um and uh but even though it was under this other sort of label they like actually did the the, the physical release and so uh a, a big force behind that was friend of the show and writer for the website justin la liberty uh who we love and um it's really good if y'all don't know about it it is kind of documentary but it feels like a fi- it, it feels like a fiction mumblecore film 
but no one <laughs> no one in it is an actor. It's like a real place with real people. Um, it, it, how real is it? Like how scripted is it? How controlled is it? It's really hard to tell. It's really hard for me to discern that. Um, but it is such a unique form of storytelling that I, I have to recommend it to everyone. Now, I think <laughs> the folks who will really enjoy it even more than I did are people who actually like bars and uh, would actually identify with this feeling of like, you know, your favorite hole in the wall bar closes. It's like a sad thing. I just see it as, you know, an unholy temple of inebriation, but you know, whatever, (laughs) Uh, who, who cares what I think? I'm a psychopath, but um, I, you know, I was watching it and feeling so emotionally affected by the characters and by the, the way the story was unfolding and really some of the like subtle aspects of the movie that I thought, if I didn't find all of this behavior abhorrent, I might actually think this was like a magical film. <laughs> Liam, I, have, I, have, I, I have not seen Bloody Nose Empty Pockets yet, yeah. but it's it's showing up on multiple top 10 of the year lists. Everyone yes. says that it's amazing. I think that walking that line between documentary and untrained actors and recreations, I think particularly in the year 2020 when it seems like you know everyone's local watering hole is shutting down for various right. unknown 100%. It's something that I think people are really going to be able to connect to. I'm really excited about checking it out. Uh, it, it I, obviously your your description of it makes it sound intolerable, but everyone else's <laughs> that I've read make it seem like a really cool movie. What do you mean? My description makes it sound intolerable. It's like mumblecore, except no one knows what they're talking about, and, <laughs> and it's all sinners anyway because they're unholy non-edgemen that frequent yeah, this place yeah, for things yeah. other than Mountain Dew. Yeah, yeah it I get magic. it. It sounds See, magic. I just described a magical movie. First of all, the straight edge thing—the straight edge thing—was supposed to be a joke, but both of you guys suspect that I'm actually a fascist, so you refuse to laugh because you're like, I don't know. Liam seems upset. I don't know what the deal is, but that's fine. I heard you know, I'm I heard actually, rumblings of dissent when you were talking about that coffee place because you know that uh, that uh, that having oh, that stop, coffee stop, in your veins. Stop! You're right? such a you're such a piece of shit. I can't believe you're right now. All right, let's get back to the movie. I don't. I guess there are people who don't like Mumblecore, but those people are called uh, Philistines. Oh. Mumblecore is great. <laughs> Mumblecore is awesome. We're we're big fans on this on this fucking podcast of that. It's true. Um, it's true. And and the reality is like you know it, it's. It is what the film accomplishes is I think what part of the reason people do have a have a issue with Bumblecore, right? Is that it, it, it ends up being pretend real, right? So like you are searching for a kind of reality and maybe you're not getting there, and the attempt to be more real is the 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 the, the pretense of that is what I think sets off some people um this isn't a pretend thing these people are just saying things and they're filming it there's no uh, as as far as i can tell there this is not scripted even if they have a vague idea of like this is what we're going to do um but it doesn't feel like actors improvising these 100 these are just real people saying what they're feeling because they're drinking in a bar and i believe that to my core so you know i guess that sounds intolerable to people who hate other humans but as a real humanist <laughs> unlike doug i found it really charming you know so whatever everyone can eat my ass Man. how about that it's really funny though because i wonder what your perspective would be if you've actually spent time in bars with people drinking and just being like oh man we got to listen to this again like that kind of thing <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, man. I mean, I, I mean, I actually have Doug. This whole thing where just because I don't uh, destroy my body, I've never been <laughs> in the various places where y'all decide to kill yourselves. Uh, 
is silly. I've spent a lot of time in bars because I have friends, <laughs> and those friends aren't straight edge, unfortunately. It wasn't Doug who interjected that, by the yeah. way, Liam. It's, <laughs> it's your boy Joey over here. Oh, I was, yeah, being, yeah, yeah. I was being kind to your opinion, Liam. <laughs> You're both the same person at this point. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> okay. All right. Keep going. Uh, keep going. Wolf Walkers. Wolf Walkers is a new Oh, film the animated from, movie. Yeah, new film from the people who did, I think it's is it Song, Song of, of the, the Sea. sea? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, people love this studio. There's they have big fans. I'm I like their other stuff. I don't, you know, I'm not a huge fan. I really like this though, and I got to watch it with Maeve, which is great cuz one of the characters is named Maeve. And uh, uh, it was it was just I just felt like we all connected to it the whole the whole family. Um, I, I also really appreciate that it is very much a film for kids. It's not something. It's not being something. It's not supposed to be, and yet it still deals with the colonialism of England's relationship with Ireland in a very direct way, without being preachy, without being like inappropriate for children. Um, and I just thought that was brilliant the way it sort of threaded that needle and told that story. Um, as well as being critical of Christianity, which I think is very justified as well. Um, so, you know, it, the the animation is beautiful. The story is really compelling. I, ca- I can't recommend it enough. I know some folks don't dig on kids' stuff, but I think there's enough here that you don't have to be a fan of, of children's media to enjoy it. Um, I also checked out the movie uh, Time. Have you guys heard about this? The one about the guy who was released from prison or something? Yeah, it is. It was... I, I was talking to a friend about, you know, what are some of the movies I need to check out that I may have missed? And I said, you know, I particularly like things that, that are, you know, going to move me emotionally. And he was like, there's no way you're watching Time and not crying. And I said, okay. So I checked it out. <laughs> and uh, boy, that was that was correct. That is a a powerful <laughs> film. And it, it's, it's not just a, a powerful documentary. It uses... Um, so the, the uh, main character... I say character. The main person in the in the film is um, the the gentleman who you described, Josh's wife, and she is mm. a, a pretty well known uh, prison abolitionist because of her experience both with him and her experience when she was in prison. And so, um, a lot of the film is made up not of recent footage, but of footage that she took in order to send to him as like a way of keeping him connected to his family. They have four children. And, you know, these children are growing up and he doesn't know what they look like. And so she filmed a lot of their lives. And the film, this movie is made up of a lot of that footage. And the way that it's edited, it's not just a, a achievement in what's being filmed uh, for the movie, but the editing of that uh, what you know? I guess you would call historical footage into the film and the way that it's put together, the use of music, the use of uh, voiceover and stuff. It's really powerful, and it comes across not like a documentary in the sterile sense, but more like um, uh, a kind of art piece that's very sort of emotionally evocative. It it really it really got under my skin, and and I was already sympathetic to it as someone who is an abolitionist, but it also forces you to to sort of at least for me and maybe not for other people it pushed me to question my own thoughts because i i wanted to know more about the crime right as if their humanity was somehow connected to that and i know intellectually that's not true but i think as a people we tend to think of criminality and the prison system that way where we're like okay yeah i mean obviously i want this guy to be out to be with his family but exactly what was the crime again as if that matters more than the 20 years he's been you know, basically exploited. You know what I mean? So mm. I, I, I just, uh, I really, I, I cherished the opportunity to question myself and to rethink of 
through some of my own prejudices in that way, but also the powerful sort of humanity of these folks. I, I, there's not a lot of stories about prison that are uplifting, you know, and, and that's what this is. This is a meditation on surviving, a meditation on mm. not giving up, a meditation on holding on to hope, and, the, and, and honestly, the anger. A lot of times when we talk about hope, we talk about hope like it's not related to anger, and it's so clear that for a lot of people, especially uh, people who are on the underside of, of uh, white supremacy and the uh, carceral state, hope and anger are related, buddy. You, you hold on to hope because you know that not giving up is part of the way that you win against the monsters who are, you know, subjugating you. So it, it's a powerful, it's a powerful movie. It's very well made. I just think uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, I, I really was moved by it. It, it must have been a pretty timely watch for you as well, Liam, because uh, this past week, you know, a, a very visible capital punishment incident was pushed through by those yep. demons in Hollywood in, uh, in Washington, and I mean in it, Hollywood. He, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I mean it's it's one of those things where I'm sure was was on your mind anyway. So I'm sure the documentary probably hit uh, just maybe even more hard because of that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, granted, this uh, the the um, gentleman who is sort of the he's not in the movie obviously very much because it's about his family sort of advocating for him to be released, but. Um, but you know he wasn't up for any sort of capital punishment. But sure. the idea that there are folks who are just waiting to die, you know, and that's part of this injustice that we're in. But I also want to encourage people. You know, I I still know people who are critics of capital punishment, but are pretty chill with the carceral state in general. And I, you know, for me, I, you know, I don't know that I speak for all of Cinepunks, but for me, I'm a full abolition guy. I'm a, let's get rid of the whole kit and caboodle. So. Um, you know, I think the movie is it, it manages to be about that without ever. There's not a lot of political rants. It's not a lot of policy statements. It's lot, not a lot of like fiery politics. It's about the humanity. But I don't think you can watch the human story and not leave with at least some feeling about the more detached kind of political ideas involved in it. So anyways, it's called Time. It, it, I think it's pretty widely available. I would highly recommend checking it out. Um, I also want to mention on the TV front, the second season of Hilda is now up on Netflix. Uh, listeners to the show will remember that I was obsessed with season one. It's one of those things that, yes, I'm watching it with my daughter, but I'm also watching it for me. Like I fully enjoy it up and down. And so uh, if you're someone who likes very artful animation um, and the sort of stories that work for kids but also can work for adults, I, I can't recommend Hilda enough. Um, also, if you like graphic uh, novels, um, the, the Hilda cartoon is based off a series of, of, uh, of graphic novels. What they did this time was they released the novels the same day as the show. So oh, if, wow. you, if you want, you can not just watch the show, but then get the novels that each of the episodes are based off of. Uh, and I think that's a really cool move. And it's probably useful for parents like as a way, like if you your kids are of an age where you're trying to help them learn to read, this might be a cool tool for that, especially if they're watching the show. So um, the only other thing I want to mention really quick on the uh, on track is fellow podcast on the network evil eye put out a christmas playlist that's all <laughs> goth and goth adjacent christmas songs i think that's awesome uh so i highly recommend checking that out you can find that on spotify if you just search evil eye you should be able to find it uh and i'm still obsessed with that mill spec record um mm. it's it's really working for me um there's one other thing i wanted to bring up but w why don't we 
go through everyone else's stuff and then come back to it because we all watched uh, mm-hmm. a movie slash docuseries called White Riot, and I think we all have something to say about it, but let's cover the individual ones first, and then we'll come back to that. Go ahead, Doug. How about yeah, you? Th- thank you, Josh. I was waiting for Liam to do a little transition over there. <laughs> I honestly, I'll be honest, Doug, I forgot that you were next, so that's why I was just quiet. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing that's on track, and that is the COVID response by current and future United States President Donald J. Trump, who has uh, <laughs> protected, protected the United States economy. Doug, people saved. don't know you well enough for this joke. <laughs> Uh, one thing I have uh, it, it enjoyed recently, and I don't know if either of you have seen this yet, is the uh, Zappa documentary by Alex Winter, the documentary about uh, the late, great Frank Zappa. I have to be honest, my um, experience with Frank Zappa is, was pretty limited before watching the documentary. I've heard uh, a few of his more well-known songs. I've certainly seen two, 200 Motels, but I didn't know much about him as a person. And I feel like it's the kind of documentary... That And we're going to talk about another documentary in just a moment, but it's one that relies on not a lot of talking heads, and the ones that yeah. it does really bring something unique and interesting to the table. Uh, it has a, really, a lot of really standout moments and a lot of rare footage, and I think it is the kind of documentary that walks that fine line in that it's uh, enlightening for people who don't know a lot about Frank Zappa, but also uh, probably provides something unique for people who are intense fans of his as well. And there are people who are obviously really, really into Frank Zappa. Uh, so it's one I highly recommend. I, I, you know, I haven't seen a lot of Alex Winter's documentaries. Um, his work, obviously, he's pretty well known as a, an actor in the Bill and Ted's movies, but I, I've always loved his uh, creative output uh, going back to his MTV work in the late 80s and Freaked, of course, for those who haven't seen that film. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really interesting to see his turn into not just sort of like a, um, not not just a, a very progressive documentary filmmaker, but also kind of a progressive personality. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but just recently I was listening to uh, another thing that I've been really enjoying lately, which is Jonah Ray's new podcast, uh, which uh, its name actually escapes me, but really the concept of it is he takes a celebrity and he does a full commentary on one of their movies. And I know that doesn't sound that interesting and probably reflects a lot of other kind of podcast-ish pro- uh, products that are out there. But for uh, his case, he's taking you know people who haven't maybe commented at length on all of these films or maybe haven't for a while, and he sits down and watches the movies with them and kind of interviews them at the same time. And it's made for some really interesting listens. I think his most recent episode is on uh, One of the Dead, the uh, hmm. uh yeah, the Cuban zombie film. Oh, uh, man. Did you listen to that? I haven't listened to it yet, but uh, th- I did listen to his uh, his talk with Alex Winter over Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and I thought it was very interesting, and I think it reflected really well on Winter as a as a person, as, as a thinker. Uh, so, yeah, big fan of, of, of that, and I also want to bring I'm up really, some reason. I'm really curious about that Wad of the Dead one, because we just covered it on Hard Business, and I had forgotten the amount of gay panic in that movie. And I'd really like to hear the director talk about it and, and see if there's aspects of it that he is no longer stoked on. I'm glad you bring that up. I haven't, uh, li- I actually haven't seen One of the Dead for a while, and I haven't listened to that commentary yet. But one of the things that is addressed in the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey commentary is the use of the F-slur in both of the Bill and Ted's movies. And it's it's funny to hear Jonah Ray try to justify it, and then Alex Winter just shut him down and be like, we were wrong to do it. 
it was a fucked up thing to do. We wish this wasn't in the movie. And he says him and Keanu both agree that they, they if they could, they would have taken it out of the movie at this. You know, it's just it's a remnant of a way of thinking that they are embarrassed about, which I'm glad it's a lot more of a, a straightforward, honest way to talk about it rather than some of the justifications you sometimes hear, which is, oh, they're supposed to be too idiots. So, of course, mm. they're going to use idiot language. That's yeah, sort of yeah, 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 yeah. It's it just shows a good like degree of moral ownership. And yeah. uh, I can respect that from an artist who's had a career. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, that's cool that, like, you've come all this distance, but to own every step of the way is a respectable thing. And a rare enough thing, particularly in 2020, when you see people on the li- smallest bit of criticism get their backups and double down on just some mm-hmm. of the worst opinions in the entire world. We're not going to state any examples of that here. Uh, <laughs> the other, <laughs> I've been spending most of my months so far uh, rewatching the filmography of Bong Joon-ho uh, for a, a different yeah. podcast project. So now I have watched, uh, as of this recording, every one of his films and a number of his short films and, uh, and uh, anthology pieces as well. The one film I want to bring up is the only one that was my first time viewing, which is 2009's Mother, uh, which is a film Uh. that I I wouldn't say that it went under the radar. It certainly didn't. People loved it and praised it. But for me, I just I didn't. Maybe it was what I heard about it didn't appeal to me. Uh, Bong Joon-ho wasn't a filmmaker that at that time I was like, I have to see everything that he's made. So visiting it for this project, it I came at it with a fairly blank slate and I was blown away it uh, immediately went to uh you know in the category of masterpiece for me in his uh, filmography which is kind of embarrassing to say that there's probably three movies for me that could all uh share that title but uh yeah if you have not seen bong joon ho's mother it's sort of a neo-noir you know dark comedy i mean of just like all of his films, it switches between a lot of different genres. But I, I was absolutely blown away with it. And uh, if you have not seen it for a while, it's actually a good one to revisit uh, in the in the wake of the success of Parasite. As with all of his films, it's not just about one thing, but certainly class is something that it's about. Mm. Yeah, man. That came out like right around Thirst came out, didn't it? Isn't, aren't I those think so. two? That, that's my memory. I think Thirst may have been around 2008. So yeah, just around that same time period. Thirst is another yeah, uh, the Park Chan-wook film. For those who haven't seen that, that is also fucking amazing. So uh, yeah, yeah so I don't know why I couple, I couple the two of those for some reason. And I think it's because like temporarily they both came out around the same time. Yeah. So. I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else, Doug? Uh, am I doing this right? Is this what I'm supposed to be talking about? Stuff that yeah, yeah no, this is, is all anything, very good. Is there anything that's whack? Anything that makes you unhappy that's happened I mean, recently? Look, I don't want to focus on the negatives. I know you guys <laughs> love to do that on this Cinepunks <laughs> podcast, right? If I wanted to talk about stuff that was whack, I'd probably talk about you know the world situation or the fact that Liam doesn't edit this podcast. It's kind of whack to me. Uh, I, just it, it all you of it makes what? me uncomfortable. You know what, Doug? You know uh-huh. what, Doug? You know what, Doug? You keep that shit to yourself, all right? Uh, <laughs> or what? If you were, if you, if you were smart, if you were smart, you would just be handing off Cinema Smorgasbord to to Jacob to edit, so you'd have more time to edit that other dumb show you do. I mean, <laughs> taking advantage of the labor of others seems more like a Liam O'Donnell thing. So I think I'll Whoa. stick with editing. Oh, you mean being part of a community and allowing people to help you? Yeah, you're right. I I, I thought you were stoked on that in Canada, but it looks like I was wrong. Well, I guess when you're the help E as opposed to the helper, it's a pretty easy thing to. I help people, Doug. <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
Hey, Josh, can you jump in here? Because I'm sick of Doug already. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready to end, end the episode. <laughs> so, for good old Joey, this is what I've done recently that is whack and or on track. I watched Kajillionaire, the Miranda July movie, the other day. And Word. after thinking about it, I think I'm going to put that on the on track line. I liked it. I enjoyed it. And um, truth is, I've enjoyed pretty much everything I've ever seen by Miranda July, except I'm not so much into her music, turns out. Yeah, neither am I, honestly. I don't hate yeah. it, but I'm not a big fan. But her film output is pretty great all around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kajillionaire lines up with that. Um, I enjoyed it very much. I thought it was really well done. Um, it's challenging in a way that's like, like, because when I first started watching it, I, I told Liam, I was like, yo, man, this is like what it's like dealing with like North Philadelphia junkie people. Like, that's what that is. It's like perpetual scheme and scam. And um, it was a difficult watch at the beginning, at the outset for me, trying to shake that notion that it's all like this, this like horrible ploy. You know what I mean? And um, as the movie plays on, it it gets to a real um, innocent perspective on these very not innocent motives. And um, I found that to be very endearing and very charming. I thought it was a really, uh, I mean, of course, I thought it was just like beautiful. I thought it looked really, really cool. And um, I enjoyed all the performances. And um, yeah. If you haven't seen it, I would highly suggest seeing it. I'm pretty sure it's available on Prime. It's available like all over the place. I thought that Evan Rachel Wood was really, really good in it because um, I, agree. I don't. She, I mean, like she's one of those uh, actors that I don't really uh, know much about. Like I've seen her in Westworld. I've seen her in. Um, wasn't she a child actor too? Didn't she play someone like as a as a kid? I don't actually know. I don't know much about her before Westworld. She was oh, in 13, 13, which is the movie I probably... Yes, 13. Yeah. I, thank you, Doug. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, she also was in um, that Across the Universe movie, which I did not like. But well, um, we, should have, we should have watched that for this episode. Oh, sweet no, thank you. Yeah, that movie makes me wish I was born deaf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, no, I thought that this movie was really, really good. And um, I really enjoyed Evan Rachel Wood in it. And I really enjoyed... Um, the parents in this movie. Who are they? The um, Richard Jenkins as the dad and Deborah Winger as the mom. Like, I bought, oh, wow. man, those guys were vicious. Like, it was almost horrific watching it, them deal if with I didn't, Evan Rachel. If I didn't know going in, I wouldn't have known that was Deborah Winger. Like, you know what I mean? Like, when it finally, yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, oh, wow. Uh, Gina Rodriguez, I thought, was also really good in it. The uh, the friend that they meet at the bar and, or right. on the plane and all that right. stuff. And, um, yeah, I real did you see this movie, Doug? I have not. No, I. In fact, I have not seen much of Miranda July's uh, output. Um, oh, yeah, I know. I, I'm obviously falling behind the curve, and particularly when it comes to movies in 2020. I think I've only seen Me and You and Everyone We Know. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, hey, from your description, it sounds very, very interesting. It, I'm like everyone else in that I thought that the fact that the world shut down this year would mean that I'd be able to catch up on all the great stuff that was being released. But it turns out I just sat and cried the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying, man. <laughs> what a waste. But uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would uh I, I mean, dude, Doug, you gotta get in on this movie. It's I think it's kind of the thing that would um that would at least awaken your your uh your mind in in terms of just this weird survivalism. And um I thought it was I thought it was really, really good. What can I say? I feel you, man. I also enjoyed it. 
I also watched a movie on Shudder called Bloodbeat. Um, have you guys seen this movie? <laughs> no, I don't even know what that is. A uh, lady is visiting her family, or well, she's this this young lady is dating this dude who uh, takes her home for Christmas to the family. Um, there's a bunch of deer hunting, and then she gets possessed by the spirit of a samurai, and it's weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a Christmas movie. Uh, it definitely takes place during Christmas, and um, man, I mean. I'll, yeah, it was one of those movies that me and Melani were just like, all right, we're just going to be in for the night because it's cold, so let's watch it. And uh, man, yeah, it was a time. I enjoyed it, but it was also like, wow, this is a time right here. It was like, man, what are white people's perceptions in the 80s of like <laughs> samurais? It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, but, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed that very much. I thought that was a, that was a good time. As far as music goes... I haven't really found anything new lately that I've been that's been really like rocking the world. You know what I mean? I would like to put up a record called Folk and Roll Volume One: Tales of Isolation by a singer songwriter who goes by the name Andara. Like, dude is like a Grammy winner and all that stuff. I believe like he won like awards and junk, and then he put out this record under COVID in isolation, and. Uh, big into it yeah it's uh it's super fun melani listened to it and she was like yeah this sounds like something that you'd like and um it's good because it's like it's the hands of like a well-seasoned writer singing songs that are hopelessly honest and it's like an honest like from isolation song kind of thing and um it's funny in ways that are like not just pithy, like they're, they're sentiments that like, I get it, but also it's very poetic in its execution, which I guess is the point for any singer songwriter really. But, um, yeah, I think that this is a really fine record and I've been listening to that a lot lately. So that's what I have done. That is both whack and on track. So, well, let, all three of us watched something that I, I think we all think is on track. Uh, and that's oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, a movie called white riot. That's about, um, the rock against racism organization in England, Josh, would you be willing to give like a, a little bit of a synopsis and then let's talk about it a little bit. So basically White Riot is a uh, documentary about um, the Rock Against Racism concert that happened in Victoria Park in England in 1977, right? Isn't that the year? 78, 77? I think it's like 78, that? I think. I think it's 78, 78, yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, it was awesome, man, because the documentary addresses a lot of like the politics of England at the time surrounding this concert and why this concert was like such an accomplishment, which featured bands like the X-Ray Specs and the Clash. And um, that shit is awesome, man. I really like this documentary a lot. Now, Doug, I know that you are uh, a fan of fascism and an enemy to music. So how did you feel about watching this documentary? Uh, Liam, it was a personal affront to everything I believe. People who know me know that um, I love the era of music that this particular documentary was about. Uh, I actually was pretty familiar with the story already. I read Daniel Rachel's book, Walls Come Tumbling Down, The Music and Politics of Rock Against Racism, Two-Tone, and Red Wedge. And that was mm. kind of my only issue with the documentary. Is uh, One of the nice things about it is that it's pretty short, right? It's only an 80-minute long thing. It's a very easy watch. But that book you know, really 
they, they interviewed everybody who was involved. You really get kind of a full picture, not just of Rock Against Racism, but everything that it led to afterwards. And particularly, I have a lot of interest in Red Wedge, kind of the communist collective of artists that was created really out of Rock Against Racism throughout the mid-'80s. It has, like, Paul Weller and Billy Bragg in it. But in terms of the, the you know, because of the focus of Rock Against Racism here, it really does feel like it's everything before, and then it all culminates in this one concert uh, and I, I think that's probably a better structure for a documentary. But I do really think that you do get a real sense of how similar uh, the UK of the mid to late 1970s was to the US of the year 2020 and how the rise of these fascist organizations into the mainstream. I mean, the language that you see come out of uh, some of the, the politicians on display here is shocking, but also not that far dissimilar to what you would hear on something like Fox News. So it's... it's yeah. It, it's distressing to watch it because you see this this response, this kind of collective response with Rock Against Racism, not just have a single concert, but really have concerts and uh, events and a, a zine that kind of collectively brings all these people together into a movement to work against this uh, this kind of racist National Front movement. Where, where in the United States, it feels like maybe it's not... There's all. I mean, I don't want to discount all the organizers who are pushing back against fascism in the U.S., but it doesn't feel like people are as united as this movie makes the Rock Against Racism uh, group feel. So, uh, you know, you come out of this movie feeling inspired and feeling like, yes, they did something, and the the shout back against fascism was so strong that it it really did kind of push the National Front back. But now we're here in 2020, and everything feels like just as bad as it was before yeah. Rock Against Racism happened. And not just in America, also in the UK. Absolutely. And, 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 and look, I, I don't want to say that it's, it's, it's significantly better in, in Canada either. I mean, this is an issue really all around the world. Well, and I... I, I agree with everything you said, Doug. I think um, I recommended this thing to a number of people, and a couple of people uh, who did watch it under my recommendation were like immediately sending me YouTube clips of stuff they felt was left out of the movie, yeah. which is fine. <laughs> um, but I get it; like, it's a very there's a lot going on at this time, and so some people might watch this documentary and be like, "Well, where are the angelic upstarts? Or where are mm. you know what I mean? Like, everyone yeah, where has are the their, Redskins. Where are yeah, those guys? Like, yeah, yeah, everyone has their niche from this time period that they might feel like is underrepresented. This is definitely like a, a it's a television special. It's 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 more like you should be impressed at how good it is for what it is. You you know what I mean? Because it, it does manage to cover a number of interesting things. And really, I felt like, you know, like a touchy area is like Sham 69. And I felt like they they handled the Sham 69 thing pretty well and yeah. really kind of showed the, the, the various dynamics at play there. So whatever. But I do think, hopefully, if you're watching something like this and it's completely new to you, this is a jumping off point. This isn't the whole story. This is something, if you watch this and it's interesting – Go get the book, or go watch other documentaries, or whatever. You know, it's 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 more of an I- introduction. Uh, but I also want to echo you, Doug, and be a little more specific. I am surprised that there is less response from like our arts and culture community than like. There's obviously connections between um, in America, at least, between uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and aspects of like uh, hip hop and R and B and things like that. I feel like, and, and I think Josh, you would agree with me, you know, people are willing to make a benefit t-shirt, which is great because I did that, you know, like we all, that, that's fine to raise a little bit of money. But I don't think in general, a lot of punk and hardcore kids are as involved in activism as these folks are at this time. Well, you saw how some of the response was to, even amongst like the clashes management, was that they saw 
the Rock Against Racism people as like a bunch of, of aged hippies, right? That, right? that they were maybe idealists or naive and that the real work was being done by bands like The Clash. Which, again, I'm a massive fan of The Clash, but I mean, that is a very realistic response, I think, to what was being seen here. One of the things that the movie doesn't shy away from is that the National Front and the rise of fascism was something that was seen in the mainstream, even among musicians, right? You, they had those really still startling quotes from Eric Clapton and Rod Stewart, you know, and, and even one of the organizers say, you know, once Rod Stewart said that, I burned all my, like, Rod Stewart and Faces albums and never listened to him again because this was a very personal thing, as it should be to people. But I feel like now it's, you know, it's very, it's very common that if someone comes out in support of Donald Trump, a musician in the United States, they would be rightly, I think, shunned by a lot of people that are not supporters of him. But there isn't a sort of kind of collective agreement on the other side of things, which is what we should do sure. to stop young mm. people from being sucked into what might be seen as an exciting movement. Or, you know, one of the things that the movie actually does a good job of is, is that there might be people who are racist who are young and ignorant or uh, maybe just unsure of things. There are people who are racist that with enough knowledge being provided to them that they might be able to be brought to the other side. But if they're full-fledged Nazis, that there's no arguing with them. That, that you know, really, all you can do is kind of kick that down. Yeah, I, that's one of the things I really appreciated about it and, and found really inspirational. Also, the moment when our man from Sham is singing White Riot with the Clash is like, I like got so stoked. I don't know about yeah, you. Yeah, that scene <laughs> was, was like, so yes. like, yeah, dude, is so like emotional and fist pumpy. <laughs> it, it really was. It really was. You know, I don't know. Um, anyways, I really liked it, Josh. You, you, you were a big fan as well. The part where they talk about them playing with Steel Pulse and like the tension backstage and all that stuff, that part made my eyeballs shrivel. I was like, oh. Um, <laughs> it's just funny because it's like, you know, like watching all of this history stuff and like, especially the history of rock against racism and like watching all of these bands and everything, you know, like a band like nine, nine, nine that gets mentioned at the beginning of the movie. It's like, you hear all this stuff. And uh, what was the band with the Asian immigrants? Um, Alien culture. I think they were called. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. All that stuff is so like intoxicating to me. Like, sure, I remember sure. just, like, looking back and, like, learning about bands, like, from this era. And bands that were in their heyday at the time that are still around today, but maybe not so much as, like, an event to see as they were back then. Yeah. Bands like the Buzzcocks, bands like um, uh, Stiff Little Fingers, bands like Coxbar, like, all these, like, English bands from this era or at least that were spawned and including bands that are musicians. I love like Billy Bragg. Um, like it's cool to see like what was going on at the time when these things were happening at the moment. You know what I mean? Like granted, this is still like maybe a decade before like run and riot was coming out and stuff like that. But it's also just interesting to see like the galvanization of music across working class people's, and bringing black immigrants and working class British people and all that stuff together. It, it was uh, the kind of thing that as a musician and as a fan of this era of music, it resonated so well with me. And uh, I thought that this movie is very effective in showing that like normal people doing normal things can stand out against issues of fascism and, and just yeah, the plague yeah. of like rampant white nationalism and stuff like this. And that, like, you know, in a day and an age when people are, like, uh, 
get upset. Some people get literally upset when punk bands are like, yo, fuck the government. Like, no, that's not very punk rock. It's like, what are you fucking talking about? Like, it's the kind of thing that when I hear these kinds of arguments, I'll watch Star Wars and imagine people being like, well, you know, the thing about the Empire is they kept everything in very good order. They're quite yeah, they, good. We need some order, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, they kept the universe safe. You I know mean, what I mean? Just because like, it's called the Death Star doesn't mean yeah. it's like bad. No, no. What, you don't like protection? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> ah. it's the same thing, right? Like watching people like unite and knowing that there are bands out there now that like legit are right wing bands and that make no mistake about the fact that like, you know, their white nationalist agenda is what it is. You know what I mean? People that are like, Oh, Antifa, fuck those guys. It's like, yo, anti-fascist. Like that's a bad thing to you. Like, I don't understand conceptually how people can be like, well, you know, it's not like these Antifa thugs. So you can go fucking shut the fuck up. And it's just, I, it, it truly shows that in a moment, culturally, when radicalization is being co-opted by the governing force and just being like, oh, no, 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 no. We're like an American, like we love Trump kind of band. It's like, yo, man, like, I don't, I just, I, there's a huge disconnect. And watching this movie definitely brought me back to the concept of like, oh no, there is a point to rebel music and there is a point to standing up against injustices with whatever tools that you have, be they guitars, be they people, be they zines, and to use that as a viable sound, a viable voice. And this movie perfectly frames that in terms of 1977 or 78 British politics, but also, like Doug said, in echoing of today's atmosphere. It's notable that Rock Against Racism was a, you know, a notable starting point for a lot of musicians as well who attended that event and used that as a jumping off point. I will say that one of the things that maybe it irritated me a little bit about the documentary, and this is just a reality, and I'm sure that that it, it, there's not really much you can do about it. Look, the fact is, The Clash were the most famous band on that uh, on that ticket, right? And mm-hmm. th- that part where it's like a conversation, is Tom Robinson going to go on last? Is The Clash going to go on last? Like, there's never even a discussion of, like, a person of color, you know, a band like, you know, you know or even, like, X-Ray Specs going on last. So when, where you get, uh, or an integrated band going on last, where you could see the reflection of the Rock Against Racism mantra sort of in action, it's still, you know, two white groups going on one after another in a Rock Against Racism concert. I mean, I understand Todd Robinson is gay, and part of that, the Rock Against Racism is a pushback against hate of all kinds, but, you know, it is still a very very reflective of the time that it's still two, you know, majority (laughs) white bands arguing over who gets top billing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very fair comment, and I don't think... My hope is that our uh, excitement about this documentary and about other stories related to this time... None of that is with rose-colored glasses. Like Nothing Mm -hmm. about any of this was perfect. But the idea that people needed to respond to the national front. And I think I won't be totally hopeless about it, but I will say there's a certain feeling like if you are too focused on the moment of today, right? Uh, If you are too like, you know, we we need to deal with the situation. There's a feeling from certain aspects of counterculture that are like well you know that's it's bad but it's always been kind of bad so you shouldn't be so emotional about it and to me like 
Proud Boys stabbing people in the street after meeting with the president is a different kind of bad. Now, <laughs> I, don't get me wrong. I hate George Bush. I hate the war in Iraq. Like I, I, I'm more than willing to, if someone wants to say, on a pure death toll level, George Bush was worse for America than Donald Trump. Yeah, you can't argue with that. that that's there's a lot of dead Iraqis who are going to agree with you, and and dead Af, uh, uh, Afghani people, and all over the place. Yeah, one hundred percent. That's that's fine. But there's a certain segment of our community uh, when it comes to me and Josh, and, and a little bit you, Doug. I consider you like punk adjacent. Um, <laughs> that that think that like only normals are are scared of Donald Trump, and that re- the real ones know. Oh, it could be so much worse. And I think you are wrong. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're you're basically right. It could be worse. Uh, we could have a fascist leader who's actually like a responsible human who knows how to use power. Like, but it should be chilling to you that he's been able to do so much damage when he's also an incompetent, bumbling boob surrounded by many incompetent people. He's still been able to unravel a lot of our democracy. So I just think saying like this moment this moment documented in this documentary reminds me of the moment we're in now and it makes me concerned is very fair and it makes me want to push back about people who think like almost like it's basic to care about politics because if your politics were super advanced you'd be even further than that and i just can't be down with all that you know the when we have kids in cages when we have uh president endorsed fascist groups like stabbing people in the street i just think it's worth being at least concerned, if not panicked. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent. I think it'll be interesting to talk about the what, you know we're going to talk about Monterey Pop in a moment, which is in itself was also a musical response. I think to kind of a culture war that was going on, right. or at least what was witnessed, what was viewed as such. Though I think it, it, it's a very different kind of response than what we see with Rocky Against <laughs> Racism, which. I mean, I, I guess you can make a case that either could be more or less effective, but I something I really respond to is the kind of more aggressive notion that Rock Against Racism presented, yes. which is that you need to march in the streets, you need to print mm-hmm. out the information, you need to get the kids while they're still kids and educate them to how the world actually works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to no- talk about that in just a second here. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be discussing 1967? 68. 68's Monterey Pop. We'll be right back.
And we are back with internet celebrity and great co-host and guest, Mr. Doug Pilly. Oh, yeah. By the way, Doug, the, <laughs> uh, while I've been out here in Phoenix, me and Melani have been, like, you know, going on, like, a bunch of, like, hike missions and stuff. And uh, there was one place in Sedona called Talakapake, which is, like, I couldn't really figure out what it was. It was, like, a shopping center, but it was, like, this open-air, like, uh, bourgeois market of, like, you know, things that I guess rich people would purchase. And um, there's a line of hats out here called Tilly Hats. And uh, I took a photograph of the stand selling Tilly Hats, and Melani was like, is that for Doug? And I was like, yes, it is. Oh, what <laughs> and then I never say? sent it to you. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. T- so Tilly Hats, I, I should, I, I mean, no one cares, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. <laughs> Tilly Hats are, uh, I had never heard of them until I moved away from Newfoundland to Ontario, where everyone asked me when they heard my name. It's like, are you, is it connected in some way to the Tilly Hat fortune? And I'm like, I don't know what that is. They are well known, or I guess they had an advertising campaign for an extended time where a, I guess it was an elephant would eat the hat and shit it out and it would still be okay. Like that's what it was known for. So it's like the hat that you can shit out. So, I mean, I feel connected to it. You can get Tilly uh, face masks right now as well. Also not connected to me in any way. <laughs> Man, I can't wait to buy the products of your family, Doug. <laughs> that can be shitted out by elephants. But back to the topic at hand. Sorry for my little uh, interjection there. Uh, what movies are we talking about today, Doug? Oh, <laughs> I love yeah. how I love how I was like, all right, Josh, you ready to bring us back in? And then the first thing you do is kick it to Doug. That's so yeah, good. because the guest is the person that brings up the movies, oh, even that's though true. it was that's kind a of a point. communal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Decision on this hey, episode. Doug, it's what fine. did we watch? What did we I'm, watch? Look, the hosting gig is what I'm used to doing. Uh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> the first movie we are going to talk about, I guess both movies, the first is Monterey Pop, which is a, a legendary concert film from 1968, directed by D.A. Pennebaker. Uh, should I also introduce the second movie? Yeah, man. And the second film is uh, also a legendary concert film in a very different kind of way, the Albert and David Maisel's uh, documentary, Gimme Shelter, about the Rolling Stones concert, free concert at Altamont. Did you find yourself wondering, uh, just as a brief aside, if Maisels was thinking he was making Monterey Pop and then discovered that he was definitely not making Monterey Pop? One hundred percent, absolutely. Because especially because they got all that footage from the Rolling Stones MSG yeah. show. Yeah. yeah, I think I think mm. the idea is less that they were thinking they were making Monterey Pop. It's just like, oh, another gigantic free concert that's going to bring hundreds of thousands of people here. We're making another Woodstock. Let's capture all the stuff, all the you know, because they're still capturing all the. Um, the difficulties they had getting the concert set up and all of that and the all the bands arriving and then they were I guess were hoping for something interesting to happen and they definitely got that. Well, <laughs> let's start with uh, Monterey Pop, the, the the less depressing of the well, two films. Before before we dive in, I would like to say that as we as I was watching these movies, it it occurred to me that I really don't know anything about Doug's musical taste. Even though we all came to this decision to watch these movies together, my curiosity is, Doug, what kind of music do you listen to? Now, this is a really interesting, uh, for me, <laughs> area to talk about. Now, I love punk music, uh, or at least I love late 70s, early 80s punk and new wave music. But mm-hmm. my first love, the first, you know how, I, I don't know if either of you come from families with like brothers and sisters that are a little bit older than you but I have two older brothers and until I was in my you know early teens or maybe uh late preteens 
I didn't really have a sense of identity when it came to the kind of music I listened to. And that was, you know, there was a part in my mind that was like, I need to differentiate myself from the music that my brothers are listening to. I need to find my own thing. And the band that I latched onto is actually one of the bands featured in Monterey Pop, which is Mm. The Who. Uh, When I was a teenager, I listened to The Who nonstop. Uh, Quadrophenia was the album that defined my teenage years in a lot of different ways. I know that probably sounds rather silly to two punk heads like yourself, <laughs> but until I discovered Billy Bragg and The Clash and, uh, and kind of the bands that, that those bands led me to, The Who were my band. And it, it, it really interesting because Monterey Pop is The Who's big breakthrough in the U.S., uh, even though they immediately were kind of uh, overtaken by Jimi Hendrix doing a very similar kind of performance at the show. Mm. But yeah, no, I love, uh, look, I try to listen to all things. I don't like to cut myself off, but that's a very cliched thing to say. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, what I will say is I like political music. I like aggressive music. I like music that is honest. And, uh, and unlike Liam, I like music that feels like it reveals things to the world uh, or about the world <laughs> to me. Uh, I, I'm not joking, by the way. I mean, uh, uh, Liam and I had a conversation before. Uh, you know, I, I, one of the things that connect me to musicians is the idea that certain musicians, whether it be accurate or not, have a certain insight to the world that I don't have. And in listening to them, it can reveal those things to me. And that might be a rather naive thing to say. But when Liam was talking about his musical tastes, he completely shit on that ex- that idea entirely, <laughs> which is that it's like, no, man, that's, that's not what music is about. It's like, that's so what it's about for me. <laughs> I don't even remember what you're talking about. <laughs> what did I say that, that, that it was on that, one of our cinema smorgasbord episodes? I was I remember being taken aback by your perspective wow. on the bands that you most love and how they have kind of uh, an imp- I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, no, when, go ahead. I don't mind. when Josh and I <laughs> talk about say Billy Bragg, a musician that both of us love. When I was say 17, 18 years old. That music meant more to me than almost anything, right? Like anything in my entire life, those songs and the lyrics to them and the insights that I feel like they provided to me as a person. And, you know, maybe that in retrospect, that seems a little corny or silly, but it didn't seem like to me talking to you about music, Liam, that you felt that level of connection with anything outside of people telling you not to drink alcohol. (laughs) <laughs> Which is funny because uh, I don't even like that many straight edge bands. But, um, no, I, uh, I, I guess I, I, I would push back against that only in the sense of like I definitely feel like I was influenced politically by like Public Enemy and for better or worse by Ice Cube. <laughs> Honestly, like, I, 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 uh, I, you know, luckily I got to the point where I realized which aspects of uh, the Predator album are anti-Semitic. But, um, you know, uh, uh, but some of that stuff. And then uh, eventually, like, I, I think a lot of crass, like a lot of the peace punk mm. movement was influential to me. But I think the thing that I was sort of referring to is um, the idea that, like, you have that one musician who is kind of like a hero who like sort of brought you up. And I never really had that. And I, I don't think that makes me better than anyone. It's just for whatever reason, it, I have this weird thing where like I actually understand why people... Because uh, I think idealization of artists can go from something more creative to something more like celebrity culture. Absolutely. And, and all that stuff actually kind of makes sense to me in the sense of like I get why people see these folks and see something attractive. But I've just never found... I don't even think I've found a fan community that I completely enjoy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, even the things I care about that are 
um, very important to me. I've always been a bit of a like contrarian within those communities. And I don't think of myself as a contrarian generally. Like I think if I'm in a group thing, I'm usually like into the group. I, I don't think of myself as like an out, but often whatever I'm doing, I, I don't totally vibe with what the other sort of fans are into. And, and I don't know why that is. I don't, I don't, I certainly don't think it's because I'm smarter than anyone. I often am attracted <laughs> to things because other people who are smarter than me like it, you know, but I don't necessarily always see things the same way. And so for whatever reason, I just haven't had those, those people who, whether at a fan level or at a just appreciation level or whatever that I connected with. And I, again, I hope that doesn't come across to anyone like, I think I'm better than you because you're a fan. I, I just haven't found that even into my 40s. There's lots of things I love. But I, and honestly, this might just be a symptom of ADHD that like <laughs> I'm getting into an artist and then I have to find something new because I'm bored with the thing. That could just be a brain chemistry thing and have nothing to do with actual <laughs> with taste. the actual music and taste. No. Yeah, it's possible. I, I, I also think it might be too late for you to make a connection with an artist on that level. I mean, I, that that might be unfair of me to say, but I really think that that's the kind of connections that you do make when you're trying trying to find yourself and your sure. personality yeah. and your place yeah. in the world, right? In I mean, high like school, I, yeah. Yeah, high school, I mean for me it, it, that lasted well into my, you know, early 20s when I started listening to a lot of like, you know, the rock revival stuff at the time or even Montreal scene type stuff like mm-hmm. Arcade Fire or Wolf Parade or things like that where I was like, you know, there's still stuff that I'm learning from the musicians that I listen to. And of course, like you said, Liam, you have to be careful about this idealized version. A, you can't pretend, you know, you can't say that everything is of the exact same quality in terms of music right. and whatever, but also that these people are infallible or they might not say really fucking idiotic things or they might disappoint you. And that is something that we've all had to contend with, I think, over the past few years about people that we really respect disappointing us in really deep and hurtful ways. Uh, so it, I try not to keep that many artists or musicians close to my heart like that because of the potential for them to betray me in some way. <laughs> yeah, but there's, 100%. I, but I have to admit that there are still a couple there, and I just I hope every day that I wake up not to find something terrible about them. I oh, definitely, yeah. definitely get that. As the owner of not one, not two, but multiple Morrissey-themed tattoos. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I can feel you on that. Yeah. Okay, let's get to this movie here. We're getting, we're getting distracted. Uh, so Monterey Pop is, as uh, Doug said, it's a, it's a concert film. I You could argue that it's in some ways more than a concert film because it, I think, very artfully is trying to document the whole event and not focus only on performances. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like yeah. certain concert films would just be on stage the whole time. Uh, and this isn't about that. This is about helping you get some feeling, however fleeting, for the entire uh, uh, event and the vibe of it coming together, the folks when no one's on stage, the the kind of offstage carnivalness of it, you know? Um, and And... I honestly think there's a certain amount of documenting the variety of people who are there. If you have an image in your mind that Monterey Pop being a music event in the 60s, that all you have are these like uh, flower-haired burlap hippies wandering around in a daze, uh, one of the things I found really cool about the movie is that's not true at all. There's a variety of fashions and styles and types of folks. There's people who look like they just came from a Black Panther event. There are people who look like they just walked off their yacht 
um, <laughs> which me and Josh were talking uh, earlier in the, uh, in the week about how the style of a lot of these yacht preppy dudes actually looks like streetwear. Like if these guys had <laughs> tattoos, they would look like hardcore kids or or slam cloud rappers or something. You know what I mean? Like it was kind of funny. Like it got to the point where it, it you just got used to seeing like in every crowd shot, there's one guy with not long hair, but kind of floofy hair in a windbreaker, a blue Oxford, <laughs> khakis, and kids. And every that time that looks I thought, like he could be the singer from Unbroken during that oh, era oh, of yeah. Unbroken when everybody looked like that. One hundred percent. Like every time, I wasn't thinking like what a dingus. I was like, man, these guys look good, man. That's a good look. <laughs> but there's also there are dudes in like the. Beatles style, you know, Sergeant Pepper outfits. You know, there are there are uh, a couple people in dashikis. You know what I mean? Like there mm-hmm. is some of that uh, wildness that began to be associated with the various versions of of hippie or whatever else we want to say. But it's not just that. It's not like everyone's covered in mud and naked. It's like a, a real document <laughs> to a variety of people who came to this thing. I found yeah. that really interesting. You know, Liam, one of the things I wrote recently on Twitter, uh, and I, I wrote it somewhat facetiously, is that Woodstock ruined the concert movie because it convinced filmmakers that the people watching the concert were as interesting as the band itself. And I sure. feel like feel like the, the kind of nuggets of that, the embers are here in Monterey Pop, but it's balanced in a lot more of a refreshing way because when you walk out of seeing this movie, the things that you most remember are those performances, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and it's not, like you said, even though there is that, that kind of flavor of uh, all the things that were uh, going on around it, one of the things I remember most about this movie, by the way, is that woman who has been tasked with cleaning all the chairs. <laughs> yeah, when she's just <laughs> like, I don't know, just lucky. <laughs> but like that, that's so the good. kind of, that's the kind of like insight into the organization behind this that I think is really valuable. And you get a lot of that in Gimme Shelter as well. But that movie, Gimme Shelter, is not as much about the performance as it is about the things revolving around it. But here, you know, this is supposed to be a a key moment in pop culture and popular music history. And they recognize that going into it. There's a lot of these bands coming in and making their debut in the United States. Or if not their debut, then this is like the first time that they've been on a stage this large. You even see, I think, uh, David Crosby say, you know, finally a good sounding venue, right? I mean, this is still early (laughs) for a lot of these people. And you see, you know, this is their breakthrough in a lot of different ways. And I mean, you can be cynical about that. And I think uh, in some cases... Very reasonable to be cynical about it, but I, that's why I'm glad we, we're talking about Monterey Pop and not Woodstock necessarily, because I, come, I came out of this movie in a much more positive, having a much more positive attitude than I would have out of Woodstock. Yeah, we, yeah I want to own, too, like, uh, when it comes to commentary on the music, I'm kind of looking to you guys a little bit more. For me, not only had I not seen this movie, but... Um, Except for the songs that are recognizable from being on soundtracks of movies about the sixties, <laughs> I don't know a lot of this music. You know, like it, 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 it's even some of the performances, like that I'm supposed to just see the band and know who they are. I'm like, who is this now? I don't know. You know what I mean? I just it, it's it's actually largely alien to me, and maybe that's partly why I actually really like some of the crowd stuff. I think when we're talking about how the movie ends, which is my only criticism of the movie, is that it ends with uh, almost almost 15-minute performance from Ravi Shankar. Um, uh, The fact that we're not just watching the the concert, but that they're doing a lot of editing of of faces from the crowd and stuff going on, I appreciate that because I don't think there's much for me to see when it comes to that performance. Um, But I agree with you. Like 
the 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 Woodstock model, which unfortunately of these three movies, Woodstock's the only one that I have seen, um, <laughs> much to my chagrin, uh, it, it is like that that there's too much of the crowd. Like, yeah, the crowd's cool, but obviously part of the draw here is we want to see some full performances. Maybe not, maybe not more than a couple songs, but you do want to see the music. That's partly why you're watching it. Uh, but I'm looking to you guys to say like, what were the standout performances? The only thing here that I vibed with is funny enough the the thing that Doug talked about which was the who I'm pretty familiar with the who I like the who I thought like seeing them do the smashing thing is again at this point it's cliche but that you know at the time was probably not you know what I mean um but otherwise I was kind of like yeah I guess I know who these people are but I don't know if this is a good performance or not it, it's, I, you it's know. amazing hearing you say this Liam only because <laughs> a I'm extremely familiar with a lot of the music and the musicians on display here but also when I see some of these performances all I can think about is like oh wow this is like this is over the moon amazing stuff that I'm seeing um, mm. And in particular, and I don't want to step on Josh, and I want to hear his perspective on this as well. But that uh, Janis Joplin singing "Ball and Chain," which is unbelievable, and you see Mama Cass I, out in the okay, crowd. Okay, I will losing say her shit. I will say that's the only other thing I was familiar with because I dated a young lady in high school who was obsessed with Janis Joplin. So I actually know <laughs> a lot of Janis Joplin, but. Um, so for but there's example, also there's also like Otis Redding's doing yeah, "I've Been Loving dude. You Too Long," Otis which is so incredible. He kills it. I mean, you can watch his whole, the whole performance uh, has also been released as his own film, and it is amazing. But also, it, it creates this really great counterpoint because then you have Ike and Tina Turner doing the same mm. song at Altamont, and you have Jefferson Airplane performing at Altamont as well, which makes a kind of interesting counterpoints in terms of how their, uh, their performances end yeah. up ha- happening. Well, that's, then, a good, that's a good example. Like, Jefferson Airplane is a name to me. Like, that, all mm. of that was utterly unfamiliar on, in both movies. You know, like, Otis Redding, I, I know. Funny enough, I only know Tina Turner from the 80s. I don't really know. Anything. Really? You didn't get the Ike and Tina stuff? No. I, I, oh. I, I only know liberated Tina. I don't know uh, uh, <laughs> suffering Tina in the same way. Um, wow. And, and I, you know, like, I know who the mamas and the papas are because, you know, historically i don't like listen to it i don't know uh, i i know paul simon a little bit but i never really listened to simon and garfunkel and then there were a couple shots of bands that like opened their days that i'm like is this someone i should know who this is like there was a <laughs> lot of stuff where i wasn't sure uh what it was you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i mean yeah. the only other thing i want to mention before josh jumps in is like the performance from this that everyone remembers is that Jimi hendrix performance where he yeah, sets man. his guitar on fire i mean that's that's it, right? I mean, that's what people think about when they think about Monterey Pop. Yeah. I mean, that's such an iconic image of him setting that shit on fire with the lighter fluid and all that stuff. I also read recently something about how the, the pants that he was wearing during the Monterey Pop Festival just, like, sold to some high bidder for, like, $100,000 or some crazy <laughs> shit. It's like, god damn. Rich people, man. That shit is wild. I mean, but, the part about that that was interesting to me is knowing that he was largely unknown at that point. You know yeah, what I mean? Like in, in the, the UK, U.S. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the idea that like here's a guy, he's going to headline. A lot of us don't know who he is, and he set his guitar on fire. That's a real baller shit right there. Like I kind of <laughs> love that aspect of it. There's yeah. kind of a, an apocryphal story that the Who and Jimi Hendrix were arguing. I guess <laughs> this is reflective of that White, White Riot documentary as well about who was going to go on first, and they ended up flipping a coin. And then the Who went on first, and Jimi Hendrix went on afterwards. And someone said to Pete Townsend, it's like, hey, Jimi Hendrix is stealing your act. He's like, he's not stealing it. He's doing my act, right? <laughs> he decided to destroy all of his stuff because he wanted to make the same sort of mark. Man, 
So, Josh, you're more familiar with this than I am, and I know, Doug, this is sort of his sweet spot. Did you feel the same kind of connection here musically as well? What what was your take on it uh, uh, from that perspective? Um, Well, I don't know if you know, but, like, Simon and Garfunkel were one of the bands that, for me, gave me a heightened interest in guitar playing and finger-picking and that kind of play. And listening to them doing um, 59th Street Bridge song, Feeling Groovy, is like still deeply cathartic for me to watch and to listen to. So like that for me was like one of the centerpieces. And the Otis Redding performance, like I just said, is so good. And sure. he looks so yeah. cool in his like green suit yeah. and all that stuff. It's like, damn, that shit this is, is this so This is only a few months fly. before he died, too, right? I mean, he's, Yeah, man. So good though. So goddamn good. So um those as far as like the musical overall persona of this movie, um not so much a Jefferson Airplane fan, but I do like the Who. Um not a Grateful Dead fan. That's like the antithesis of everything that I enjoy. I don't I mean like I get it. And I understand, like, the culture behind it. And I understand, like, there's maybe one or two good records that everybody's like, well, you have to get that one. And Box of Grey and all that shit. Yeah, cool. I get it. (laughs) But that said, fuck that band. I can't listen to that band at all. Terrible. Um, I got great news for you, Josh. The Grateful Dead did not perform at Monterey Pop. No? No. They almost performed at... at, I love uh, that. I love that. Oh, they almost performed in, in Altamont. <laughs> it's in the Wikipedia page, which is what I, I have up in addition to the Monterey Pop uh, IMDb page, just because I wanted to make sure that I had all avenues of the internet available to me on this. I guess what I should computer. say is that they're not in the film. Not in the film, but I was just looking through the through the performances and yes. on the list on on here. And um, but yeah, as far as the film goes, I'm sorry. My bad. Um, yeah, I also... Josh didn't watch the movie. That's the, that's what he just revealed. <laughs> yeah, I never saw the movie, too. What are we talking about? <laughs> now, and it's funny, too, because, like, watching the mamas and the papas, like... And just, I remember people making jokes about Mama Cass and all that stuff. Like, I oddly remember, like, Sam Kinison jokes about Mama Cass dying and all this other stuff. Which, I don't know anything about any of that stuff. But um, watching them play was pretty cool. But again... Paul Simon and Arkar Funkel playing together mm. just on a stage with one guitar, especially at a festival that is like all these tuxedo shirts with ruffles and like yeah. fire and oh, sweet baby Jesus. Like, I don't know if you know, Doug, I'm a performer of the solo variety in my own right. Mm-hmm. And um, I've definitely played a lot of shows where it's full bands and everybody's loading in at the beginning and they're just like, yeah, man, we got two drummers and we got all this crazy <laughs> shit. And they're like, well, what do you have? And I'm like, one microphone, one guitar. Thank you. You know what I'm saying? So like watching them play at the middle of this festival is just like, holy shit. Like I know what that feels like. And that makes me feel so good that I can understand what they feel like just as a performer. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. But also the other thing is, I don't know if you guys know, I'm a little bit of a gearhead. Did you know that? I love Fender guitars from this time. I love Guild guitars from this time. I love the Gretsch guitars from this time. And watching all the Who smash up like guitars <laughs> that would easily go for upwards of eight to $9,000 these days makes me want to shit my pants and die. <laughs> oh, sweet goodness. And just like all the amps and all that stuff, every like... 
Man, in the Ultima movie, there's a scene where they pull up a sun cabinet to block the crowd out. And I was like, yo, man, I had to work for most of my 20s just to be able to afford part of a sun cabinet. And they're just bringing that up to keep the riffraff off the stage. That shit is insane to me. So, like, watching both these movies with this movie in particular is, like, a gear dream. It's one of those things where every single instrument on stage I literally would sell one of my arms for just to be able to be like, oh, this is what that feels like to play. That shit is fucking beautiful. As I suspected. So um yeah, no, I I, I love this movie a lot. I thought it was really fun to watch and just like and there are scenes at the beginning of them like getting all the shit together. Like yeah. when the one person's on the phone with he's like, oh yeah, we're waiting for Dion Warwick. <laughs> he hands it over to the girl. It's like, yo, man, he's just talking to Dion Warwick on the phone. That's not real, right? Like, that doesn't happen in life. But it did, and it was documented. <laughs> also, it brings it brings up my relationship with festival concert going. Mm. What's your relationship with that, Doug? Did you go to a lot of concert festivals? Well, again, I grew up in Newfoundland, and, and we used to make a joke that when people did coast-to-coast tours in Canada... They'd start in British Columbia and they'd stop in Nova Scotia and never made it to Newfoundland because it's an island. The cost and the uh, benefit of mm. a lot of musicians coming to the to the province was pretty limited. So we did not see, um, honestly, many. If, if we saw even a name artist, it would be some ridiculous name artist like Elton John or Rod Stewart or something like that. So it wasn't until 1998 that there was a festival that even came to Newfoundland. It was the Summer Salt Festival put on by uh, Rain Maida from Our Lady Peace, if you've heard of that band. I remember that band, yes. Uh, I had a roommate so, in college that loved them, but go on. It, it was a, uh, a all-star grouping of Canadian artists of that time period. It featured Moist and the Tea Party and Sloan, which is actually a good band. Oh, yeah, um, I love Sloan. And and except Sloan didn't make it to Newfoundland, they stopped in Nova Scotia and decided that they'd stay with where they lived and not come to Newfoundland, which created this wow. schism between Sloan and Newfoundland that lasted for like a decade because people were upset about it. Um, but it <laughs> it was a whole day, you know, for someone like me who hadn't been to a lot of concerts at that point, I did enjoy it, right? Because uh, mm. it, it felt like it felt like by the end of the day you had experienced something really unique. You see mm-hmm. the same people over and over again. You see, you know, you start to make, develop relationships. You start to uh, feel more of a connection with the group that you're with. Mm-hmm. It's strange. It's kind of the opposite of what you see in Gimme Shelter, where it seems like as the day went on, people just started irritating each other more and more <laughs> to the point that that it, it just kind of reached a breaking point. I, I can see how that could happen in those type of situations as well. But uh, but that's that's really my only experience like that which is kind of strange like my wife she she's been she went to a bunch of Lollapaloozas and but Mm. she used to follow Tori Amos the musician around on tour so she's seen her hundreds and hundreds of times all around the United States and elsewhere uh so she has this you know in terms of that community that sort of floating community that goes Mm. with with that experience of following a musician around I guess that's sort of like a similar kind of thing except it would all be compressed into one day in a full day festival (laughs) Yeah, I get it. How about you, Liam? What's your relationship with uh, concert festivals? Um, I almost got beat up at the first... Uh, no, I guess it was the second Warp Tour that came through Philly. Um, fam- famously... Um, oh, what is his name, Josh? The guy who does uh, who has the uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu studio now? Jared Wiener. 
Yeah, Jared Wiener saved me from getting beat up by a jock during <laughs> Snapcase. Uh, and uh, and I think that that was also the Warp Tour where I believe it was during H2O, a uh, Nazi kid almost got beat to death. And uh, 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 let's just say the people who were beating him within an inch of his life all had I Hate You shirts on. So, uh, you know. Yeah, that was the first Warped Tour because I was there. Is that the first one? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, boy. And I remember that because certain players in that little altercation are my friends. Yeah. um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Shame. So I wasn't going to say that, but I'm glad that you did. Uh, So so there's that. There's that Warped Tour. And then there is uh, This Is Hardcore Fest. Mm-hmm. And uh, Heard of it. Heard of it. and that's it for me, buddy. That's that's the total. I, that that's not totally true. As an adult, I went to Austin City Limits for one day, but oh, I'll tell wow. you, I'll tell you what about Austin City Limits for Liam O'Donnell. That was three music performances and me eating way too much food at the food trucks because they were very good. <laughs> um, I really only went because uh, I could get a discount ticket through a friend of mine, and I watched Elbow. Oh. Um, and then that night was Arcade Fire, who were great, who I've seen Arcade Fire three times, and they've always been great. Um, but yeah, that's I, admit, that's... I want to mention, Liam, I had tickets to the 2004 Lollapalooza that got canceled that was going to oh, be he- sure, headlined yeah. by Morrissey and Sonic Youth, <laughs> PJ Harvey, and the Pixies, and Wilco, and Modest Mouse, and I was so excited about it. And I, that was before I would have even known that Morrissey was a piece of shit, and I would have been even more <laughs> excited about it, but unfortunately it got canceled, so I didn't get to experience that. Man. Yeah, I, I, I will say the only other experience I have that you guys can roast me for is uh, I went multiple times to the Jesus uh, Concert Festival uh, Cornerstone in Illinois, um, at which I saw many a Jesus hardcore and punk band while staying in a tent. And it was the best and worst time ever. Uh, Did you get the- laid? No, I didn't. <laughs> uh, it was the it was the, <laughs> you you laugh you laugh, but um, it was the best time because I I really did see some great bands during that time, and a lot of those bands didn't always tour the way that other like punk and hardcore bands did. So it was cool to get to see some of those bands. It was the worst because, as you guys know, I hate camping. I'm not an outdoors guy. <laughs> so like the idea that I had to sleep in a tent to go see bands like angered me at a very deep level. <laughs> I have a serious um, question about this uh, festival, yeah, Liam. Yeah. Now, I've seen uh, videos of these like Christian music festivals, and I know that's not what we're talking about here, but it, all the footage seems to be people like rocking together with their arms in the air. Is that the kind of thing that you were doing? No. In fact, um, uh, part of the problem with a uh, festival like Quarterstone at the time, because this was like the later 90s, early 2000s, was that um, it brought together people from all over the country. And I soon discovered that people do not mosh like they do in Philadelphia in other parts of the world. So uh, did I regularly get gripped up by some youth pastor telling me I need to watch where I'm kicking? Yeah, that happened a couple <laughs> times at Quarterstone. Turns out people don't do the sort of uh, kung fu antics that I'm used to, or at least I was when I was uh, 20. Um all over the country and so people thought I was literally assaulting them and to me it was just like what you do at a show yeah so, how you dance yeah, I get that yeah um, you know I did I knock anyone out just a couple you know but never on purpose <laughs> you know what I mean so whatever it's fine um, but it it, yeah. it is it is funny because uh, some of those bands had crossed over into the secular world as Jesus people would call it and so uh, that band No Innocent Victim I still encounter uh, meatheads who like that band who aren't stoked on Jesus, which I don't know why. I don't think that band is that great, but they had fans. And uh, 
a crew that I will not mention because I don't want the remnants of that crew to come and beat me up showed up for that and like tried to start fights. And I'm like, why are you starting fights at the Jesus show? Like these guys are not <laughs> going to fight you. That's like not a thing that's going to happen. And so, uh, uh, yeah, it was it was a whole thing. So, anyways, um, yeah, it, it was it was uh, that that festival famously was organized by um, there's a collective in Chicago called Jesus People USA that started off as just hippies but by the 80s had been kind of like infiltrated by punks and um, if anyone's ever anyone out there who is a secret Jesus past if you've ever been to the Jesus Radicals website that was actually started by folks at Jesus People and eventually I think those people left Jesus People because of their politics and whatever and eventually Cornerstone went from a diverse festival of creative Christian music to Swoop Hair Metalcore Fest Midwest <laughs> and all that played was Swoop Hair Metalcore bands uh, uh, but I had stopped listening to that kind of music by that point Liam can I make some criticisms about the movie Monterey Pop yeah please do <laughs> I, we've gotten off on so many topics at this point, it's crazy. And we haven't even gotten to Gimme Shelter yet. Uh, my only criticism about I think it's a really good and fun and entertaining movie, and I do think it provides some insight into that time period that is really useful in some of the segments that are around the concert footage. But I have to take issue with two things. One is who gets more than one song in this movie? Um, I don't sure. understand Jeff. why... Why Jefferson Airplane gets two songs and The Who only get one, or like I mean, at least Otis Redding gets two, but you only get to hear the end of one of them. I mean, it's just strange how that ends up working. And the other thing is the order in this movie. It's just mm. kind of strange. It is weird to have that Jimi Hendrix performance, which for let's face it, that should have been the end of the movie. How can you possibly yeah, right. follow that? And then they follow it with the Mamas and the Papas coming out, and I have nothing against the Mamas and the Papas. It, this this concert, this uh, Monterey Pop Festival, wouldn't have existed without the Mamas and the Papas. Um, mm. Actually, when I say I have nothing against them, I do actually. I mean, I, the, the the people in the band I have against. But anyway, uh, well, wait, wait, wait. What was the beef? That's that that they're dicks. Is that, that what it is? I, I believe I might be wrong on this, and I uh, I I wish I could confirm. Let me confirm this quickly. Here we go. <laughs> That uh, John Phillips, the uh, gentleman that we saw in the fuzzy hat mm-hmm. who was calling Dionne Warwick and helping to organize things, his daughter, Mackenzie Phillips, said that he had an incestuous relationship with her for uh, a very long time. Yeah, and that's... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, th- and there was all kinds of, like, uh, abuse of, of mama and uh, lots of uh, drugs being maybe more than given, like, pushed onto each other. Yeah, and exactly. it, it was a pretty unhealthy relationship in that band. See, so, that's kind of like the thing about this movie, though, right? Like, all of that, like, seedy underbelly of all of this is not at all videotaped. That's true. Right. right. This is the utopia, right? This is the this is yeah. the everything is wonderful and everybody loves each other. But you know that can't be the reality of every aspect of this festival. Especially when you think about how many people that you see in here died within, like, five years of this movie coming uh-huh. out. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. also, a, I mean, some of them within a year of this movie coming out. So, I mean, yeah, this was kind of the beginning of the end, or maybe Woodstock is the peak and then gimme shelter is the come down to some extent but yeah, just the ordering of it look we've already talked a little bit about ravi shankar ending with that 15 minute raga it's if i was high i probably would really dig it uh and it is really impressive i think musically when you watch it but the fact is during that 15 minutes they barely show the performance they're just showing yeah. the crowd the entire time and it does give you kind of a scope of how big that crowd is and how diverse it is and how interesting everybody looks but to me like that's the that 
is the the filmmakers giving into their worst tendencies about look how crazy everything is look at all these people and then they all uh, and how much they're appreciating this foreign sounding music there's just something that really puts me off on it and the fact is you just can't follow up that Jimi Hendrix performance everything afterwards just feels mm-hmm. like a slow kind of either not let down but at least a slow kind of tailing off until the movie just ends yeah also, for the record, I was high while I was watching this, and I still don't like Ravi Shankar. <laughs> and uh, yeah, not my thing. I was telling Liam that while I was watching the Ravi Shankar bit, there's like parts of the people dancing and like headbanging and stuff to his music and everything. Yeah, yeah. And um, it reminded me of seeing a band like Wolf Eyes, which I yeah, don't know if you've yeah. listened to that band, but they just sound like a tank battle in like World War II. That's what it sounds like, two tanks <laughs> hitting each other to me. And uh, I've seen them live in art spaces in Philadelphia and in Brooklyn. And um, people dancing to that stuff, y'all ain't dancing that stuff. No, it's a performance. That's not it's a not thing. Real. Yeah. yeah. That, that, You're not out here just right. singing along to some tank battle. Not no, a thing. That's, and yeah. just watching the sitar music play and dudes like dancing to it, it's like... Yeah, not a thing. The other thing about watching somebody play the sitar to me is the nightmare-inducing idea of having to tune a sitar (laughs) without an iPhone. Could you fucking imagine? It would drive me crazy. I wouldn't even know how to handle it. Just the idea makes me feel completely claustrophobic (laughs) and somehow nauseous. Oh, hell no. And then no shoes. The fuck? But that's not important because, you know, I get it. It's the hippies. But, um, man, just on a sanitary level and on a musician like tuning level, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't handle it. Just one more uh, thing, Liam. I just yeah. want to say I think that uh, Eric Burden and the animals performance of Painted Black is actually really shitty in the movie. It seems like he doesn't yes. know how the song goes. And I don't know why they would have included that. And I love the animals. I think Eric Burden has an amazing voice. I don't know. Mm. Maybe maybe that performance is just shit all the way around. But what a weird thing to include yeah. a, a <laughs> hastily, obviously hastily put together, barely remembered version of Painted Black. That was one of the things where I was like, what the fuck is this? Like There are just multiple moments during this where I just assumed you guys would know what was up because I don't know who these people are. And that was one of those moments I was like, this is not the Rolling Stones, and this sucks. Why is this in the movie? <laughs> so, um, hey, hey, uh, I think we should. This is a good point, I think, to transition to talk about Kimmy Shelter because I think that question around um, the underbelly and what's actually going on. You know what I mean? Like that—that's sort of what happens with Kimmy Shelter, right? There is no, uh, unless you particularly enjoy the the earlier performances of the Rolling Stones. This is not a film in which the performances really matter. It's the story of the show because we don't get a good perform. I mean, every performance at Altamont is interrupted by, I don't know, somebody getting beat up or killed or whatever. So, um, it's it's really not a performance movie, even as it is still very much a concert movie because it's about this event that did not quite happen. Um, I have, like I said, only watched parts of this for you know vague American studies kind of classes. Uh, but had you guys seen this before? And, and what do you think about Gimme Shelter? Let's start with you, Josh. I'd seen this before, but I am not a Rolling Stones fan. Like, I get yeah, it, yeah. and I understand why people like it, but man, not a fan. Not my, not my bag. And um, I mean, like, you know, I've seen all the Wes Anderson movies. I've tried. You know what I mean? The Wes Anderson movies is a great reference, by the way. It's true, though, right? Like, dude, a lot of people of our generation only like the songs by the Rolling Stones that have featured in the Royal Tannenbaums and in, like, other Rolling Stones or other fucking Wes Anderson movies. And um, 
I I saw this movie when I worked at a a video like a mom and pop video store in Bayonne, New Jersey. So I was like really like young. I was this was like maybe two thousand one, and um, I won't say that um, the movie made me either more sympathetic or less sympathetic to the Rolling Stones, but this movie is like it's a nightmare. It's terrifying as a person of color that enjoys music made by the majority of <laughs> white people and appreciated by a lot of white folks. It's one of those movies that when I saw, I was like, Oh shit. Like I would never have gone to this thing. And thank God my dad didn't go or my mom, like that shit would have been crazy. But, um, yeah, that said, I found this movie to be, um, even though I knew going in that it was like a bummer, I really still enjoyed it. I still think it's like a really good movie to watch. Now, Doug, you are a huge Rolling Stones person. I know you have a photorealistic Mick Jagger tattooed on your butt. So what was it like for you seeing your golden boys brought low in this movie? I do like the Rolling Stones. I don't know why you're uh, being like, – like I'm supposed to come at it with, oh, no, I despise the Rolling Stones. No, no, no. I just wanted to make fun of you for something. Yeah, I, like, I like the Rolling Stones a lot, uh, but I do have to say I don't think – it was weird watching Monterey Pop and then watching this simply because the performances in Monterey Pop are so good. And then mm. the performances here are, they're just not. They just don't, they're not that interesting. And like you said, Liam, it's not really about the performances. But that said, there's still a lot of performance footage here, particularly of the Rolling Stones. And you see them kind of triumphantly perform at Madison Square Garden. Uh, and there's a lot of footage of that. And it's supposed to be really great stuff. I think they even released a live album of that concert. But just the Rolling Stones live just don't do it for me. It's just a, a little bit too much posturing and not enough, you know, actually cool performing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and I don't necessarily think that the Rolling Stones were de- deserve a lot of the the criticism for what happens here. It's not their fault. Mm, I mean, yeah. it, 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 they did agree to do a free concert, but... You know, it's not like bands have not done large free concerts before. And if anything, you think going into it, knowing that it was free, might have avoided some of the headaches of Woodstock where people were supposed to pay and then ended up coming in for free anyway. Um, So, I mean, I I do think that to lay it all on the Rolling Stones is really unfair, that the organizers deserve a good bit of the blame. And the people who are pushing for something to happen that obviously was not a good idea, that it was falling apart for a very good reason because they didn't have a proper venue to have it in. And, of course, whoever made the decision to have the Hells Angels provide some security (laughs) for this particular uh, concert. But the big thing that's on display, that that re-watching Gimme Shelter, and I have seen this movie a few times before, is that... Like, shit was going bad well before the Rolling Stones got on stage. Oh, yeah. No, this is where the the two things about what you said that I kind of want to disagree with is um, we're shown that, A, Jefferson Airplane, a band I have no emotions towards whatsoever, they at least seem to step in with the Angels a little bit, and hence why they get attacked, where the Stones... A, they just hang out in their trailer all day, not caring about the chaos outside. But B, when they're on stage, they keep cajoling the audience. And it's like really obvious by that point, is it the audience buddies or is it the bikers who, back to your other point, uh, the Stones were the ones who invited to come. It was their yeah. idea because they had worked with the Angels in England. And um, you know, one of the things that me and Josh talked about that I think is worth mentioning here is that I'm sure this is a bit of a cultural difference in that yeah. The angels in England are rockers. And anyone who knows about the conflicts between rockers and mods is that despite their dirty look, 
Rockers were the rich kids. They were the posh kids. They were the kids with privilege, yeah. much like the Rolling Stones, who were themselves uh, silver spoon rich boys. It was the mods, unfortunately, because I have other reasons not to like them, like the Beatles, who actually mm-hmm. got in fights on the streets, you know, and actually I, I, knew I, mean, I should say, Liam, as, as Ringo uh, famously said, he's neither a mod nor a rocker. He is a mocker. But the Who were a mod band, yeah. But <laughs> and, and a better example would be the Who, or like you know we watched White, or we watched White Riot. You know, like it's worth remembering where do skinheads come from? Skinheads were mods who shaved their head because it made it easier mm. to fight people. And I think <laughs> I think that's, actually that's something we didn't talk about with White Riot because I know that that uh, you know skinheads are not all racist, and that's something that they try to make very clear in it. But then then he follows up with, but a lot of them were racist. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's that's the point, right? Is that like if your knowledge of skinheadery begins in 1977, then yeah, you have an image of. I mean, just the idea that skinheads listen to rock music is actually novel because the original skins in the 60s, it was ska and reggae alone. They were not interested in rock Mm. of any kind. Even the ones who maybe were also racist still only like black (laughs) musicians. Um, And so uh, the the reality of like a certain version of of what it means to be skinhead comes only out of the 70s and it ignores a whole decade of history before that when Northern Soul and that whole community were, you know, the whole Trojan record scene was a little bit mm. different but this when i don't want to focus too much on skinheads per se but i do want to say that like if you want i don't think it's a big jump to assume that the hell's angels in england were different than the hell's angels in the bay area who are mm. notorious for violence crime and honestly racism yeah so you know i i think that was a bad plan on their part um I, I do want to say uh, we've talked a bit about the uh, movie in the sense of like uh, performances and music and stuff. I want to say the most brilliant part of this film that I think is worth lifting up as just a filmmaking thing is the footage of Mick and yeah. I forget the drummer's name. Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts watching their footage. Yeah. And the look on Mick Jagger's face uh, when he is watching himself at the press conference Ugh. talk a big game or whatever. He's so fucking disgusted with himself honestly if there's any moment in this movie that makes me feel for him as a human it's him realizing what an asshole he is on on camera um that moment i was like yeah buddy you really fucked this up didn't you (laughs) i like when you see them watching the footage and then every once in a while they'll smile a bit because they like what they're seeing but then they start to frown because they realize what this is in the context of right Right, and that's something that i think an audience would get out of this anyway right if you have a lengthy scene sequence of the Rolling Stones performing some of their biggest hits. You're like, hey, yeah, this rocks, but you're never going to forget that someone's going to die before this is all over. Right, right. It's brutal. It's brutal. It's brutal and it's brilliant filmmaking. It really, like, adds the context you need to understand the early parts of the movie so that you, it's not, like, it really reminds everyone what is going on with this whole film, and I found those moments to be really striking. Another moment that was really striking for me, I want to see if it resonates with you guys, uh, the moment where there is a, a woman who is nude, who is attempting to storm the stage. Yeah. And the look on her face is one of every caricature of what high people are like from a B movie, yeah. is what this woman is. She is gone. She is not there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She is in another world. And she is willing to 
crush and manhandle anyone in her way from getting her nude ass on stage. And the thing about this is I do very much want to blame the Hells Angels. I don't think that's unfair. I do very much want to say that uh, uh, you know the organizers and the Rolling Stones and all these people were responsible. But I do want to name something that I think the movie does in, in, in certain moments is that um, drug culture is not under control. You no. watch Monterey Pop, you think, oh, these people are probably high and they seem fine. You see mm. that woman during this movie and you know, well, no one could control this, especially not these drug-ass b- bikers, <laughs> but yeah, no yeah. one could control that lady. She is out of control in every possible way. And that's not the right. only time we see that, right? There's a, a, a kind of an overweight guy that we see who is completely out of it, yep. totally naked yep. near the stage. We also see people further back in the crowd like convulsing on the ground and yeah. having these, these these different fits, I guess you would say. And you see one kind of tough-looking guy and he on starts stage. like yeah, well, yeah, well, taking that his tough, clothes off. Yeah, that's right. But there's also earlier in the movie you see them trying to interact with like the cameraman making the movie, or maybe the sound guy. I think it is. And he's like this guy just keeps trying to hug him and like touching his face and things like that oh, over yeah, and over. Yeah, yeah. You see these interactions that you could see could easily explode into violence, especially if the person that you're hugging and trying to touch is not the kind of person who likes that sort of thing. And of course, you also see as the people have to walk these huge distances from their parked cars to get to Altamont, there's people selling drugs to them on the side of the road as they're walking. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I joke a lot about straight edge stuff, you know, with you guys, because it's fun to, to bust balls and whatever. But I, I'll be honest, I'm not, as much as I am still stubbornly sticking to this thing, I'm not really <laughs> turned off by the idea of drug culture. You know, when Josh tells me mm-hmm. stories about eating edibles and doing weird shit, I think that's actually fun and funny, and I, I don't really have a problem with it. Watching this movie, those moments, like seeing that woman, I thought, nah, man, fuck that. Like, fuck every part of that. Like, the <laughs> that she literally is, like, grabbing the women in front of her by the face and throwing them. It yeah. is fucking terrifying and then realizing like her mental state imagine if she was like some of these larger folks we see or you know anyone who who is in a position where they could even do more damage it's it's again i don't think it's a judgment on all like i think there is such a thing as responsible drug use even though when the war comes i'll fight all of you but uh (laughs) but 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 uh but i do think irresponsible drug use is clearly dangerous not just for the person who's high but everyone around these people could have something fucking awful happen to them yeah man yeah. just watching the dude on stage getting ramped up like that's the kind of thing that like and he was a hell's from, angel wasn't he i mean yeah I he so. was yeah, yeah. they and definitely like, were dipping in it wasn't they weren't just drinking they said later like oh we we're just drinking beer i'm like there's no fucking no, way that's not beer yeah that's either beer and psychosis or drugs and like man just watching him like get all hyped and breathing heavy and doing the yeah. things with his hands and all that stuff like i've seen that before and a lot and knowing that and knowing that this dude is unchecked amongst his peers about to create violence on people, like, that's such a volatile scene that that, I mean, like, let's be honest, like, the Hell's Angel stuff in this movie is more of a player in the entire thing than the Rolling Stones are. Yeah, 100%. um, Like, there's there's one scene where they're walking their motorcycles through the crowd, and the crowd kind of parts to see, like, this stream of motorcycles going through. Like, that shit is terrifying to watch it is such a brutal like sort of damocles that just was uh, i don't know either by design or just by fate was just poised to kill this whole thing and to effectively kill the 60s right like kill the 70s or whatever 
what we said at the beginning of the show that I, mean, I don't actually, remember. Going back to what you said at the beginning of the show, Liam, I mean, this movie looks forward to the Manson murders, right? I right. mean, it's the same kind of out-of-control, uh, drug-fueled, hippie-ish type thing where where it's all it all... It's all based in the same context that we saw in Monterey Pop, but it's taken to these extreme, out of control and violent levels. And also the idealization. I mean, that's something we've talked about as well. Before drugs even are something that you see in the movie, you see a woman on stage saying, I want to see Mick. I want to see Mick. So you're combining the drug use stuff with the fact that people have this incredible star power and this cult of oh, celebrity yeah. oh, around yeah. them. Yeah, and, that just, and this that just rabid people... fandom, too. Yeah, exactly. And then people, I mean, as the Rolling Stones start performing at Altamont, people are already rushing the stage, right? People are getting thrown off left and right. It's my favorite moment of the entire movie. It has nothing to do with the Rolling Stones or the Hells Angels. It's when the Grateful Dead show up and the guys from the Jefferson Airplane say, uh, yeah, everyone's going crazy out there. Our guy got punched in the face and they're like, ha, well, we're not performing. Peace out. And they just take <laughs> off. They're like, we're not performing. I mean, that's the sensible reaction of what was going on there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. Like, I get it that like, the Stones tried to do something good. It was above their abilities, and we should feel at least somewhat bad for them. But I do think, like, in the moment, none of them stood. I, I have so much more respect for the dude who got punched from Jefferson Airplane. Again, a band I have no interest in. Like, I could die having never heard another Jefferson Airplane song and be very satisfied. But the fact that that dude at least... Again, not that these folks this this is not, you know, for, for for anyone who hasn't seen this. This is not like a hardcore show. You know what I mean? If you mm. if you saw Freddie Madball punch a sound guy in 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 the 2000s, don't think that's what's going on. All these people are very chill, hippie type people, but he does try to get involved and for it he gets hit even though he's one of the stars, right? Like when you're mm. in a band of this level, you don't think Oh, one of the guys is going to punch me in the face. But guess yeah. what? You know, he gets hit. And actually, and, this and, is a really good point, Liam, because one of the things that you, one of the things that isn't sympathetic about Mick Jagger in this is that he feels like he's in control. That he right. is the master right. of the stage. So when he tells people, "You've got to calm down. You've got to sit down. Everyone, calm down." He thinks that he's in control. But what this really puts on display is that. Uh, nobody is in control in that situation. No. The, the mob is in control. And but in his defense, I, I don't know if this is in his defense or not. But I do want to say, like, I, the, I have heard people sort of say, like, well, it's you know the Hell's Angels are the Hell's Angels. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And I refuse to let uh, a violent racist organization off the hook in that way. Sure. I don't think that's realistic. Ed, it's worth saying that, like, obviously not all the violence is caught on camera, but at least four of the maybe eight or so altercations that are caught on camera involve black people and i don't mm. think that that considering how few black people you see in 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 this movie you know you see them occasionally but it's not like a huge segment of the crowd so the fact that they re represent a larger amount of people getting hit by by hell's angels and then eventually getting stabbed because they pulled a gun out a dude pulled a gun out is like that's not a coincidence to me that's that's a that's a group of folks who uh, explicitly or implicitly have a bias and that's who they're taking their violence out on. Right. And so, uh, and that's not just like a reading a Wikipedia page. It's in the fucking movie. You can see it. Yeah, like, you oh, see it. who's yeah. getting hit? Oh, it's another black guy. Oh, who's getting hit? It's another black guy. Like, that can't be a coincidence. And so, um, again, I don't know that that lets the Rolling Stones off the hook, but it is worth saying, like, Unlike other movies that are documenting something like this, I feel like there's a bad guy in this movie, right? Like mm -hmm. a series of bad guys in this movie. Um, by the end, I don't think anyone, 
I don't think a lot of people watching this movie are going to leave going, well, this was just, you know, mistakes were made all around. And, <laughs> and so, there, there are villains, right? And, and yeah, the whole yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, if they would... Uh, if they would not be uh, the way they are, this situation wouldn't have to be as bad. I think it's chaos from the beginning, but it wouldn't be as bad if they weren't the way they are. You know what's interesting, though, Liam, is that if this was to happen today, you would get the perspective that you get in this movie from that guy who's next to the helicopter before it takes off with the person yeah. who's stabbed, where he's like, mm-hmm. the, the someone came in with a gun and the Hell's Angels stopped them. And right, yeah. he's just trying to t- take all the responsibility off of what happened entirely. And I mean, that's going to be the, the the Fox News headline the next day is that oh, 100%. You know, a, a black concert goer with gun tries to rush, sta- rush stage and, and the brave uh, biker pushed them back and stabbed them to stop them from doing it. Oh, the the resonances between this movie and things that are happening now. Same with as we said with White Riot, but here mm. too, it's like when when as soon as he starts explaining to the cop, quote unquote, what happened, yeah. you're like, oh, here it is, you know, here it comes. And to know that that's been part of who we are for this long is upsetting very deeply. Yeah, it's so it's fucked up. And like straight up, you're going to a big field of people on drugs where most of them are white and you are who you, you know, you're someone who has access to a gun. I'm not surprised he brought a gun. You know what I mean? Like, I I guess there's this feeling of like, I can't believe he brought a gun to a show. And I'm like... I don't know, buddies. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't believe in guns, but the, if I did and I was that in that environment where I felt kind of like, you know, uh, alone in a crowd, I might want my security blanket there. Like, I'm not that surprised, you know? So I don't know. I, again, I get it. Like, it's, 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 uh, you know, it might be a surprise to people that that would be the response, but, um, uh, I don't know. Maybe Anyways. maybe if I was in the midst of a crowd which had people with pool cues beating on exactly. them. Exactly. Dude, when the yeah. pool cues come out, what the fuck? Holy shit, man. I guess they were given those specifically as the tools yeah, to keep the crowd yeah, in. Crowd in, deterrent. Or, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, in, it's insane. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I get it. I get why it's easy to blame uh, what we hear so the reason we keep bringing up the blame who's the blame that's how the movie starts right is people calling into a radio station blaming each other and for the hell's angels it's really clear that the rolling stones fucked up uh, okay i guess you know they fucked up in what trusting you jerk offs like uh, again i think it's true that it, there is definitely a, an amount to blame to be placed with them and with the other organizers but i don't like the idea that like well the hell's angels are just the hell they're just going to do what they're going to do and or they just showed up yeah right? yeah like that absolution yeah no i get it yeah it's- so, anyways, I I do think like it is a brilliant for for what it is, which is documenting something that happened. There are insights here. It's not just raw footage. The editing is good. The filming is good. The use of them responding to the events is very fucking good. Um, and there's some moments here that like they just catch. You know, they didn't set it up. It's just what they're yeah. catching that are fucking magical that are like the perfect representation even if the magic is horrifying because they're nightmare images um the, the fact that they caught it and it's in the movie is like mm. a, a testament to the to the the film itself yeah and the tina t- the icon tina performance is actually really cool it's the one good performance in the entire i mean i like yeah. the flying brain uh, brothers I, agree. Too, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean don't get me wrong like i fucking hate ike turner but uh you know it, it's, it's it's no lie that they were a fucking powerhouse, and that performance is really amazing. And then, of course, it's cut off by Mick Jagger watching the footage saying, it's nice to have a chick occasionally. Why the fuck did he say fun, that? Fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, okay. Brutal. I I do want to say a chick who blew you off the stage, dude. I think I well, I think that moment isn't meant to be. I think he's actually being sarcastic. Yeah, and maybe then he is. the the know. look he makes after he makes the comment is the look you make when you are a sardonic British person who can't turn it off, and you just realized he said something inappropriate. I think that's what he's he's making fun of himself. Like it's nice to have a chick occasionally because she is so amazing, oh, and then he realizes like, oh, this movie is about how everyone hates me. I should maybe shut my fucking mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'll give him that much credit, and and I do think like I don't think the Rolling Stones, unlike a lot of people in a situation like this, I don't think they left the situation being like, oh, it's fine, we didn't do anything wrong, everything's cool. Like I think they very much felt that this was something fucked up that they were to, partly to blame for, but I don't think this movie you'll you won't watch this movie and think, oh, I just feel bad for those fellas. I think uh, I think it fairly leaves them in kind of a dark light. And 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 it yeah. is really a powerful document to that moment. Yeah. I also think a lot of the art that they made afterwards was in response to being yes. part of this. You know? And I mean yes. and th- I think that shows a level of self awareness that some other musicians may not have had in the face of that. I agree. Mm-hmm. And and I I do want to say like this is one of the my mom didn't listen to a lot of music when I was growing up, but Rolling Stones were one of the things that she really loved. So I have a lot of nostalgia for this band. Um and so like st- knowing about this moment is part of the story but i think um you know it, 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 i don't i don't rail on them a little bit because i don't like them i actually do like the rolling stones but i will agree with doug that if this is evidence of their live performance they've apparently didn't get good at being a live band until their 70s or so because i don't know when i see the footage of them as old men dancing around i'm like oh they seem pretty good at this i guess i don't know yeah you're like oh man maybe being pickled by years of drug abuse and cigarettes has made you a better performer apparently apparently um uh, okay well i guess that's uh basically all to say I, you know i i think if you if you haven't seen either of these movies and want to do a double feature i actually think this is a great double feature um and and i really like you know again i don't want to lazily say like and this was the end of the 60s but but i do think (laughs) this was an important moment to people's consciousness and to the ways that people thought of um this kind of movement this cultural moment you know so it's worth thinking about yeah it's worth watching for sure Hey Doug, thanks mention- for doing this with us. Oh no, I'm believe me, this has been a long time coming, Liam. I've complained about not being on Cinepunks for a very long time, and then yes, to almost have. be on it and then have it taken away from me uh, felt like a, <laughs> just an extra slight on top of everything else. I, I want to mention that you can watch on the Criterion Channel both Gimme Shelter and Monterey Pop, and they are both uh, the I believe the Criterion editions, so you can actually see some contextual stuff and cut uh, footage as well uh, if you want to check that out. And if you even if you don't, you should probably get the Criterion Channel because it's pretty terrific. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, uh, not only do I want to thank Doug, but I want to make sure people know that uh, obviously I do a show with Doug called Cinema Smorgasbord. You can find us on the Cinepunks Network, or you can check out our website, cinemasmorgasbord.com. But Doug, do you want to talk about your other podcast you have? You have sure. a podcast that you've been doing, I think, since podcasts started, right? Yeah, for, for almost a decade now, I've been doing a uh, No Budget Nightmares podcast, which is uh, focusing on shot on video and micro-budget Cinema. We actually haven't recorded much this entire year because of the pandemic, but we do have a pretty interesting project out. If you're aware of the filmmaker J.R. Bookwalter, the director of The Dead Next Door and Robot Ninja, uh, he has uh, an upcoming release of a six-pack 
Blu-ray of the films he made under the Cinema Home Video label in the early 1990s, all shot on video. And uh, both Mo and I from the No Budget Nightmares podcast have a commentary on all six of these releases that you can get from Tempe Entertainment if you do a search for that online or just follow us on uh, Facebook, No Budget Nightmares on there. So we're also involved in some of the other special features there. It's nice to have a relationship with uh, JR. And, uh, and while some of those films are of varying quality, let's say, uh, I'm really proud to be part of it. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. We also I have love, uh, commentaries I, on, on JR's other films, like The Dead Next Door and Robot yeah. Ninja, if you want to check those out as well. I definitely want to hype up The Dead Next Door, uh, mostly because it's the only one of those that I've seen. But uh, <laughs> I, I also really like it. Uh, I famously picked it for our Horror Marathon episode we did with uh, Burdan. So um, I, I really recommend it. I'm glad I got the Blu-ray. And I haven't yet watched your commentary, Doug, but that's my next step for that. It's like in my player right now waiting for me to watch it with the <laughs> The commentary in that case was actually, this is how we got uh, involved with JR in the first place. It's a repurposed episode of No Budget Nightmares that he has now cut to the film. But I our commentaries that. on Robot Ninja, Skinned Alive, all of his films going forward from that Ozone are all original commentaries that Mo and I did for those films but it was something that you know that was the kind of the starting point I've, I've just talked about this recently but believe me as a kid growing up in Newfoundland who read about the dead next door and couldn't even see it because my local video store doesn't have it the fact that we've developed this relationship with JR is, is still kind of a mind-blowing thing for us and I just want to mention one of the special features on this new upcoming set is a zoom recording of the original script of one of the movies that we are, uh, are, are, are did a commentary for, the original script had to be thrown out the window because the weather was so bad when they were filming. So they get all the actors together, and uh, Mo and I do the scene transition readings for this script. So you can see us on video uh, in this Blu-ray as well. Amazing. Whoa. I'd so love for cool. people to see your beautiful face, Doug. That's really great. <laughs> so good. So good. Well, we, we really are thankful that you came on and, you know, you're such a big uh, internet celebrity and everybody knows uh-huh. you and yeah. um, it's we're, we're looking forward to that Doug Tilly bump for this episode. We figured oh, I would hope so. <laughs> we'll go up a full 50 to 60 downloads and that'll be really great. Um, but anyways, thanks for being on. Um, we want to encourage everyone listening, even if you're only here for Doug, uh, to uh, check out some of the other shows on the network. Um, definitely rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. And, you know... Uh, if you're willing to, we'd love it if you would check out our Patreon. And on the website, we have some new shirt designs that we think that you will enjoy. So uh, check some of those out. Maybe grab a shirt or maybe uh, post about it, but not actually buy one yourself. That's fine, too. <laughs> uh, but we really appreciate uh, everyone who checks out the show. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for rating, reviewing, subscribing. And we will catch you again later on down the road. I love you. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Smoke bomb, smoke bomb, smoke bomb. (laughs) Do you like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love horror business. The horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Dong. And I'm Justin Lohr. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great or maybe not great. Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products.